I'm here today with Scott Bluedorn, a local artist out here on the east end of Long Island. And uh, yeah, Scott, what's going on, man? Uh, not much. It's definitely the middle of winter. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. It's probably the most download time of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot of people get to experience the East End at like this time of year. Mm -hmm. People wonder like how people survive out here this time of year, but mm -hmm. I mean personally, I kind of like it. Yeah, uh, I think if you have the the wherewithal to enjoy your life, or if you're inspired to do things out here, that keep yourself busy. You have to, or you, I don't know. People do go crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's like that's one of the things I love about like just watching some of your Instagram stories because you don't even do the orthodox keep yourself busy things. Mm. Like I see you foraging for mushrooms and doing things like that. Yeah. <laughs> so when people say they're bored, I'm like, how are you bored? I'm like, it's like you can never really get bored. Yeah. But uh, have you been mushroom hunting lately? As a matter of fact, yeah. It got warm a couple days ago, so... The winter mushrooms you look for out here are oysters, which are a really good gourmet mushroom. And um, they need uh, freezing temperatures to actually to, to flush. So um, when you get cold temperatures and then a bunch of rain and it warms up, you go looking for them and you will find them. Uh, I didn't find them last time I looked, but I did find some early January, which to me, it's always amazing. You're like, it's the middle of winter and you can still go out and forage and find stuff. Like... Um, yeah, if I'm going to talk about like getting into foraging, it's it's such an amazing thing because the more you learn, the more you, uh, you more you want to know. You know, it's like however many answers you get, you just get more questions. And right. It's a it's like a fascinating world. And I got into mushrooms just like little by little, and then it snowballed into like <laughs> yeah. it's just an obsession at this point. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it's <clears throat> have you ever been scared that you're gonna maybe eat the wrong thing? Have you eaten the wrong thing? So one time. <clears throat> Yeah, one time, um, I think I just freaked myself out. Yeah, I, I, uh, it was a, it was a type of oyster uh, from a um, a tree in Montauk, and uh, it's the middle of the summer. And the thing about uh, the thing that you have to get about uh, foraging for wild mushrooms, you have to be hundred percent right on your ID, right? Like, or you don't eat it. Uh, so I was a hundred percent ID, like knew what it was. Um, the mushroom question is called an angel wing mushroom, actually. And um, it was reported to have sickened people in Japan like one time a couple of years ago. Um, but then other guy said, this is a completely fine mushroom to eat. And that was an isolated incident. And I'm like, okay, it's fine. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so as you had eaten it or you kind of knew what you were getting into as you ate it? Yeah, I was like, okay, this plenty of reports say this is, this is eaten with no problems. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I would be very nervous of that. We just watched Into the Wild the other day. Yeah. And he, like, eats the wrong thing, and that's, like, what takes him yeah, out. Exactly. Right? So, well, I ate this, and then I instantly just felt strange. I was like, okay, this Hopefully might have been a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's because I gave myself a little bit of a panic attack. And right. I just got a little lightheaded, so I sat down, drank some water, talked myself out of it, and, like, a little later I was fine. So yeah. I don't know what happened, but that's the thing. You have to be 100% sure of what you're collecting and what you're eating or you don't eat it it's right. just not worth to take a chance be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's this And I mean now <laughs> looking back like when I was first getting into it a couple of years ago there are some probably chances I should not have taken just eating whatever I 
you know, pretty sure I thought I was. So. Are you just using books? Or are you using online? Both. Both, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's cool because, you know, you can get guides. But guides, it's funny, they change all the time. Right. So the older guides uh, are, are outdated at this point because they keep taking things and putting them in different categories or they'll reclassify them. Um, but then you compare that to mushroom lore, you know, what's known for hundreds of years, and that's pretty fail-proof. Um, names might change, but... Um, in terms of IDing, I use books, and then I uh, use a great app called iNaturalist. Um, which, but they're all guides. You know, you have to like, you still have to compare them between all these different sources, and then you can kind of average it. And even if you're sure, you still like, you know, should only you only need a little bit at a time, and you see how you react to it, and uh, you know, and then if you're good to go, then you can, you know indulge but kind of like psychedelics yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so i guess it's a broad spectrum for mushrooms yeah so wait so do mushrooms evolve at all do they kind of i mean do they over time like if you have a let's say a chicken whatever head or chicken wing or something like that does mm-hmm. it eventually like over a hundred years does it turn into something different and like different derivatives of the main mushroom mm-hmm. um i'm not sure maybe i don't know if they i mean DNA is that what you mean like if DNA can change or yeah I guess I mean because you know how some plant species they kind of morph over time yeah and I wonder if they kind of do something similar oh they definitely do right over time uh, sure and then each colony of each strain can be different right and it also depends on what it's growing on which is another huge thing because this is the thing about mushrooms is like they're not plants and they're not animals it's amazing that there's like science didn't even realize this until like 100 years ago yeah that it's a completely other kingdom which is so strange. I mean, it's so fascinating. They just all of a sudden, sometimes overnight, there's mushrooms. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of wild, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's the most fascinating thing about them. That's why they were always considered supernatural. Right. Like they just come out of nowhere. And, and they kind of are aliens of our planet well, a little bit. I I think that they are. You I, do. I don't think that they originated on this planet. I definitely mm-hmm. believe that there's like mushrooms on other planets. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that kind of that that brings us right back to our conversation we were having the other night. Yeah, yeah, we were we were talking about just cataclysmic events and asteroidal impacts and Randall Carlson and all his you know ideas of of what our human like what our existence is and what our extinction might be. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating to think like that. I mean, it's actually it's it's very rare that something kind of catches my mind and I start thinking about it like throughout the day. Mm-hmm. But thinking about how one microscopic organism could infect a planet, like let's say the moon, mm-hmm. and then eventually it eats us something, and then that eats us something, and then eventually there's bipedal beings, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, or something. To me, it makes perfect sense. I agree. And that's the way mushrooms spread. Yeah. You know, if you have like a loaf of bread, <laughs> and you reach in to grab a, like I just literally experienced this, like you reach in to grab a, a whatever, like a single slice like you're contaminating the entire loaf, right? Yeah. Just that little touch, yeah. And then you wrap it back up, either put it away or put it in the fridge or whatever, and it'll just over time it'll colonize. The same right. thing with the planet. If one little comet had some or anything like moon dust or whatever that's contaminated, had fungus or bacteria, it's very plausible that it came from somewhere else. Yeah. And infected the, the planet was almost like you know it's an environment or like an unfertilized egg. Totally. Yeah. yeah, because it is. It's so strange because we have so many different dimensions of existence on Earth. I mean, between the the sea, right? And then you have all these, div- like, the, I mean, just bizarre, diverse corals and fish yeah. and species and 
then you go to Earth, you know, just on land, let's say, and then you do, you have, yeah, from everything from a pine tree to a mushroom growing on the pine tree. It's just, mm-hmm. it's infinite. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, people always like, you know, they, they want to go to Avatar, but it's like, this kind of is Avatar in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like, if you really just kind of pay attention, it is kind of Avatar in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, it's not as wild in the mo- as it is in the movie. I still want to go there too. <laughs> yeah, the, well, it's uh, it's based on you know biological nature, right? Which I don't know. I'm very much looking forward to the point where uh, scientists come out and just say we found life on another on the other, on another planet. It's just a matter of looking hard enough and identifying what life is. I've been. Don't you think they kind of know? Maybe. I do think they know. Yes, yeah. I I have a feeling that they know. Yeah, and there's like two different sides of it, right? And we were talking about this the other night yeah. too. And and it's a cool that it's this huge area of study, and there's like this countercultural scientific movement that does recognize that it's most likely that there is life, and or that they our government knows about it and just doesn't want to tell us. Yeah, for any x number of reasons. And but it's going to be cool, and I think that it is going to happen within our lifetimes that that i think they're going to come out and say yep yeah there's planet there's life on other planets and uh here it is and then it's just going to snowball and be like oh yeah it turns out there's advanced uh civilizations that have always been here but they're like within us yeah like interdimensional maybe or even it's like it's interesting you talk about like you know maybe even inner world theory and the more i think about that like just kind of scaled back from and i obviously these are theories right Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying there's validity to it, but if you've been to Lewis and Clark Caverns, mm. it's, no, uh, it, it, well, if, if you've been there, I'm just saying it's okay. like, if you go to any of these caverns, there's some in, in South America and these giant caves and tunnels that just go to, they don't even know where. Mm-hmm. And there's these rivers just flowing into the middle of the earth. And mm-hmm. what do we think that that's just, okay, well, that's, we'll deal with that later in another mm-hmm. 40 years. Mm-hmm. But the reality is if you go to Lewis and Clark Caverns, I mean, it's so bizarre. Mm-hmm. And first of all, the fact that they found those things way back when is just, that must have been just mind blowing. Cause even now you go in those things and it's, it's just these big caverns that are just, they just go forever. And, um, they're kind of a touristy thing now, but those types of things exist all over the world. And there's just these giant hollowed out areas with different life inside of them as well, different minerals, different things. And so where does that go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the interior, uh, I think about that all the time. You're stumbling upon like those caves or like cave paintings in Lascaux or like yeah. Altamira. Like I, I can't imagine stumbling into that and then seeing that in real life. It's such a trip. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because it's like, you know, if we were to have a, a cataclysmic event right now, almost everything that we do have and know would probably be erased. We don't have, mm-hmm. like, what is our, 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 I guess our, cave painting mm-hmm. do, I, like, do we have that like do we have something etched in a big piece of steel somewhere or, you know what I mean you know what I think it's going to be what's that if everything gets obliterated we're, you're going to find plastic like hundreds of millions of years from now I think that's going to be our tech signature you know and they talk about all these like signs of civilizations you know it could even be alien or like millions of years in the past like ours is going to be like plastic based just you know digging up floppy disks yeah microfibers <laughs> well those those won't those might be liquidated but you'll right. still find like you know plastic uh molecules yeah i think everywhere probably it's going to be like a layer you know if it's going to be sedimented you're going to you know future archaeologists will dig down and be like oh this is a strange uh phenomenon. latex yeah like, there's just this plastic layer for like 
Uh, looks like from about 1950 to 2050. <laughs> yeah, totally. Ah, it's only 100 years. This is a very quickly lived civilization. Yeah. And then they'll see, oh, yeah, it looks like they, yeah, looks like they poisoned themselves. Yeah, <laughs> they ate the wrong mushrooms. They ate the wrong mushrooms. Well, they didn't eat an, enough of the they, that's right probably, mushrooms. That's probably the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like, you know, it's, it is strange, though, because when we dig up these relics from the past, and it's all this old pottery and so on. I don't understand how that made it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We always like, how did how did that survive and the other stuff didn't? The most uh, fragile thing. I guess it's because they're well, they're hard fired, so they were. And when you fire it, you're literally fusing the the clay molecules into like a glass, like a silica. So I mean, they, it becomes somewhat um, resistant to, I guess, heat and pressure and. I guess if it's buried with mud, too, yeah, it's something it's different. Buried. It's all about how it's buried and how it's like sedimented and and what's disturbed and what's not. I don't know. I I think archaeology is super fascinating. Same. Yeah. And being an excavator, you know, I uh, mm-hmm. people always often ask me like, "What do you find in the ground?" Oh, yeah. Nothing. <laughs> Literally nothing. I find more Pepsi cans and Dorito bags than right. anything. I know. You know, from like the workers from before or what have you. Mm-hmm. I wish it was a dinosaur, you yeah. know, or something. Well, that's the kind of thing you got to really look carefully. Yeah. You're excavating. It's probably not going to be that possible, but. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I'm every scoop. Realistically, I'm looking. You are. That's I mean, good. well, because, yeah, I mean, I'm we're very technical in like what we do necessarily because we, you know, we're looking for utilities or we're yeah. looking for certain things. And mm-hmm. I'm constantly looking at, pro- at soil profiles and mm-hmm. and realizing the evidence of this glacial sheet that did exist and in what actually created long island um mm-hmm. you start to get a, a sense of it differently than just walking around on land it's almost like when you fly out of the airport and then you get to thirty thousand feet and you go oh yeah the world looks pretty round mm-hmm. you know and you kind of get a you get a sense of like what it is you mm-hmm. know you look at you kind of look at the the curvature you look at you get like a perspective of yourself even mm-hmm. so when you look in the ground when you start digging 30 feet in the ground here 20 feet there you start to see this consistency of this layer of clay mm-hmm. and this layer of clay is not like any clay i've ever seen mm. it's it has zero impurities in some areas sometimes when i dig through yeah. it i'll be like basically a layer of topsoil you know loam yeah. then to like maybe like a bank runny sand which is interesting that bank runny sand oftentimes has signs of rust because it's like very dirty, rusty colored sand. Mm. And so it's a lot of heavy metals and so on. So that's like a whole other topic. Then you get to this layer of clay that sometimes can be 10 feet deep to 120 feet deep, wow. you know, which is, but it's bizarre. Have you harvested any of that? Yeah, I have. Yeah. I made a couple little bowls out of one nice. one time, but I didn't fire them. Um, I got some clay from Noyak actually at a great spot my friend uh, brought me to and it's like right on the water and you know he thinks and it's probably so that this is probably a good source for all of the you know natives to, for their clay collecting yeah. so it's high quality right and I have a big bag of it I really I want to use it yeah oh so I should think of you next time because I'm constantly looking for I mean I have ample amounts I have it by the tens and twenties of truckloads of That's it usually awesome. Yeah. It is if you don't have to get, you know, paid to get rid of it and so yeah, on. Yeah, right. It's funny because people out here, they, they see it as like a um, a negative. Yeah, of course. But it's so rich. Yeah. If well, you were to, you could you turn it. You a market for it, absolutely. I mean, I think agriculturally it could be utilized in a lot of ways. Yeah, for if it, if you have too much drainage, I guess, in your soil and you can mix it in. Well, and out here they never think that. They always never, think right. that. But I'm thinking like even just for growing, it's just so rich in so many different things. I, I don't know what it's rich in, but I mean, you just grab it and it just fears like 
it has like no impurities. It's just smooth and no little rocks in it. It's just this perfect yeah. sculpting clay, oh, that perfect. gray sculpting clay. It's yeah. really, it's quite fascinating. I see this. Yeah, huh. I'll, I'm going to bring you a big chunk of it next time cool. I come through some. Yeah. Which is weekly. <laughs> yeah. That's but, rad. Yeah, so that's that's been interesting. But that's what Brick Kiln Road is. That's basically a big right. layer of clay over there, and that's yeah. what they would make all the bricks out of and yep. so on. So cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just it kind of you kind of start to see that there there was like an I guess like an isostatic pressure that was on Long Island, and as everything right. kind of retracted, it left this land volume, if you will, which is now Long Island. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see that meme that was going around recently that was like, uh, oh, they're changing the signs in Glacier National Park because mm-hmm. the glaciers haven't melted yet, or what have you. Oh no, I haven't seen that. It's like these guys <laughs> that like are like anti everything, right? Yeah. But. Um, it's funny because I actually grew up there. I gl- grew up just outside of Gl- Glacier National Park. Uh-huh. And uh, I will say that the glaciers have melted a lot. Yeah. They are, they still exist, but they've melted mm-hmm. a lot in my lifetime. Yeah. Now, whether that's completely from us or whatever, it's, you know, open for debate. But it's it's crazy to, like, people that, like, be like, oh, they're changing the signs because they're not completely gone. It's like, dude, <laughs> they're pretty close. Yeah, they're pretty close. They're pretty damn close to yeah. being gone. They're not like they were when I remember when we were a kid. We were looking at pictures from, like, yeah. early 90s, and it's like, you know, they got the, the little mountain goats running around everywhere, like, up high, and, and there's a lot more snow than there is now. Yeah. Or glacier, if you will. Yeah. I've seen – I've been to a couple glaciers that – uh well, I went to one in New Zealand that was, like – pretty sad <laughs> really like from where the original entrance was in like the 20s i think when they first opened it up as like an attraction you have to walk a good hour and a half two hours up up the mountain to get to the very and you can just barely see the end of the glacier field and like okay so that's one century and it's retreated like two miles like at least <laughs> yeah it's huge amount of like totally huge amount of melting yeah yeah i mean yeah that's that's the thing you uh i mean i've been interested in climate change as like a, uh, a whole field of well science for a long time but you do you do the more you learn about it the more you do realize that there are all these natural cycles and absolutely we have this effect on it but it's not it pro- most likely is not a completely a man-made phenomenon like there's always these fluxes going on and that's what these ice ages are and we're still actually in a warming i mean we're we're coming we were coming out of the last ice age and now we're going back into an interglacial yeah um warming period so it is interesting the more that we because i remember when climate change kind of first came on the map i grew up in montana and literally nobody believed in it there right mm-hmm. it was like a very republican-based state yeah um i obviously think that we do have a, an impact on something mm-hmm. but then the more i learn from randall carlson and, yeah. and different people i start to realize that there's a wavering um, of events, you know, yeah. and, you know, like one of the things that I've kind of like been thinking about a lot lately is that we used to drive into LA, we'd go, we would drive down to, to California from Montana, you drive into LA and there'd literally just be a layer of smog above the whole city. Yeah. And it was pretty gnarly. <laughs> I mean, if you weren't from there, it was, it was very evident, but if you lived there, it was probably not that big of a deal, but they'd have like high pollution days. It says it on the sign as yeah. you drive down the freeway. And they still do. I think they do. Yeah. But it's just not as what it was. Yeah. Cars have gotten so much cleaner, yeah. right, as, as how they burn. Right. Uh, it's just not quite the same. So I, I guess they say transportation is not quite as big of a, a, as a factor as, as other things, obviously, like uh, waste, waste plants and things like that. Mm-hmm. But still, it's, uh, 
it is interesting to see some of these glacial areas and that they have they have melted. It's like, what, are we hanging on to something that we don't know? I don't know. I don't really know, but it seems like there are things that are actually happening. Mm-hmm. We went to one in uh, British Columbia, and we actually found this little cavern where we got underneath these these ice. Well, I guess they're like ice caves, but this mm-hmm. one went on forever. And we should put up a picture of this one actually when we when we edit this up. But we went underneath there. It's like a whole other world, and then you can kind of start to see where they're grinding on the mountain. So you see this like this mm-hmm. gouge marks in the in the so ice. Cool. And the ice is 300 feet thick, yeah. and you're underneath there, and there's just these bizarre colors. And mm-hmm. I went to one in Iceland actually, just in November. It was really small because <laughs> they change every year. <laughs> it's right? like, that's like our, our whole thing. I was like, they're tiny. Yeah, well, yeah, they're tiny, and they're also they collapse, and they have to find new ones. And yeah. some some of them are like epic, and some of them um, like they were epic, and then they just mostly collapse. Yeah. But what's cool is when they tell you that what you're looking at is like you look and you see the bubbles when they're super compact yeah ice. yeah you're like looking at 900 year old air like mm-hmm. they know how how old this part of the glacier is and you're like oh when these bubbles melt you're breathing the same air as the vikings like literally the same molecule I'm like, That's... like oh shit that was spanish flu <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> who knows what like yeah what's locked in there yeah <laughs> so we found a uh, a little piece that had broken off it, it turns like really white right before it kind of like shales off of the yeah. sides and uh so we grabbed it and we were looking at it. we're like there's a piece of metal in here no, holy shit really so we get our lighters out and we, so we start like melting this little piece and we get all the way to it and then it's just like it, it was just air <laughs> <Is> it, uh, <laughs> like, it's, or it's an out of place artifact yeah we were like holy shit we found like a bb from the you know 1600s or something yeah. <laughs> it was not <laughs> but yeah so i guess a lot of this is like the biggest segue into your art let's say um does any of this stuff that kind of we're talking about reference into your artwork that you do and yeah definitely yeah because you do like a lot of like windmills and yeah well a lot of what i've done i mean a lot of what i do still do is based a lot in like the sense of place especially here you know history anthropology culture a lot of it has to deal with uh, yeah tradition but also in the environment and how the environment uh influences human culture vice versa yeah that's where to me that the whole uh, you know climate change is like a as a theme comes in a lot but it, it for me it's more about like the intrusion on the natural world um the dialogue because they're each thing is influencing the other but now it's like i don't know human uh our capabilities are just annihilating so much so quickly like we don't even know what we're destroying i know Right, and that's why I'm so interested in science, and that's how everything links together. And you have, you know, science and culture and uh, ethnography, um, tradition, how things change over time. Um, but when I related to this like place in in particular, like the Eastern end of Long Island, it's it's cool because it has a little bit of all of those things. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's like if. If we were to let's say terraform Mars, mm-hmm. right? What would we take there, and that would we, that we've learned here? Like, how, would we do it differently? Let's say that is a huge question. Right? I think we're gonna well do the same at thing. At least Elon Musk will be, but like, I just hope that he doesn't end up being like the dictator of Mars because he'll be the first one to get there. He's already got the haircut a little right? bit, right? I mean, it seems like he's on his way. I mean, but that should be something that all of humanity gets a say in, and will he willingly give up? that kind of power and authority like it's insane to think that 
as a single person, he, uh, you know, it's it's like above NASA. It's above like the I know. Uh, European Space Agency. Like he's gonna get there first. Like maybe the Chinese will be right after them. Maybe, yeah, but maybe. Like he could get there and claim the whole planet for himself and like exclude other you know people from coming to that planet. Theoretically, he could. You know. I guess that's true. He could already have his own little force up there. Right. I mean, don't I, come on. It's like anything is possible these days. Yeah, totally. That's the thing. He's like, he sends up a couple of cyber trucks, outfits them with, you know, turrets and machine guns. He <laughs> just has his own place. Yeah, yeah. It is weird that, like, there's such a big span of time between from when we went to the moon, which I don't know if we did or not. <laughs> I just, I just, I don't know. I just want well, questions. There's bases up there. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it, there's that too, right? So it's like, um,. Either it doesn't exist or... Or they're just not telling us everything. Like, let's not tell them that it's actually a weekend vacation for some people. Or it's hollow. Or that, too. It's just, it seems like there's a little bit of truth to everything, maybe. (laughs) Right? Um, I mean, this is why I like these quote-unquote conspiracy theories, because a lot of them are so advanced. And it's amazing how people can take an idea and back it up with a ton of, like, if you want to consider it logical evidence or not. Like, a lot of it's very compelling. You know, and you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, this is why this isn't like a mainstream idea. But you can also see that if those pillars of mainstream ideology aren't necessarily solid, the whole thing collapses and then the other thing becomes extremely plausible. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, that's what's, uh, you know, I like to entertain all conversation of, mm-hmm. of people because, because I think it's fascinating. Yeah. But I went down this deep rabbit hole of flat earth and just because mm-hmm. I just wanted to understand what the hell, you know, because right, right, it's right. like. What if the damn thing is flat? Obviously, I don't believe yeah. that the, it's flat. Let me just put this out there. I do not believe the Earth is flat. I just like to hear the opposing side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, in this in this world, I think if we can take one thing away from even the past couple years, just even 10 years, in our age, we've been lied to so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a few years ago, we were all in agreement that Big Pharma was the enemy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd all lost friends right. to pharmaceuticals and so on. And then... Now, all of a sudden, they're daddy. Yeah. You know, so... Such a crazy time. It's bizarre. So, it's like, we can have questions, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, and I want to hear what these people think... Completely. ...about the world being flat. And mm-hmm. I think they lost me a little bit with the ice sheets and all mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. But in reality, um, you start watching them on YouTube, and if you're just... If you're looking for something to believe in... Yeah. Well, oh, that's you how can, these things catch on. You can sync up immediately. But this is what... All right, so what we're talking about right now is... The thing I'm think I think about daily and have been thinking about daily for uh, probably two years, three years or more since probably you know before everything got extremely crazy in the March of 2020, um, and it's the idea that there's reaction and reaction and this marketplace of ideas that is not allowed to exist um, all of a sudden. Right. It's insane when you think about Neil Young, really like trying to censor Joe Rogan is totally insane to me like, totally he's an old hippie yeah he used to absolutely talk about free speech and now here we are trying to censor free speech yeah and the idea that some people uh think that others cannot make up their mind for themselves is is totally well it's authoritarian and like it's like the definition of authoritarian yeah no i couldn't agree more and it's insane and you don't have to like joe rogan for the people right. that are listening to this you don't it's have like, to listen we get it it, you don't but, have to like right. the guy. It goes back to Voltaire. Like, yeah. I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Absolutely. We don't have that marketplace of ideas, and now, like, the censorship is 
it's bizarre to me, honestly. Like, if you don't have a good enough um, argument, you know, then you need to be able to defend your own arguments and and in a in a marketplace of ideas. Right. It, like, I keep coming back to that. Uh, it's it's freaking insane time. It, insane time. it honestly baffles me. What it has highlighted the most is individuals, mm-hmm. you know, and the individuals that are, you know, jumping on a side or, you know, it's just, it, it's a little scary. I, didn't, I really didn't think people would, would be that way. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that, I knew people were scared, but I didn't really think people were so reactionary. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, this has been super highlighted. Yeah. I don't think it's even just now. I think this has been, I think it's been happening for some time. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it happened, you know, it ha- it's everything's, poli- yeah, everything's politically charged or, you know, people are being swayed mm-hmm. just from the commercials that they get. And now that we've all know that our phones are giving us ads based off of saying something, mm-hmm. uh, if you're not awake now, you're not ever going to be. Yeah, and because you're probably kept in your echo chamber. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, that's, I think it's the defining theme of our time, and, and it has been, like, this, like, slow cultural change, and I think it was just accelerated by, like, just the chaos of the last couple of years where you have such an unsettling political situation with such an unsettling cultural uh, yeah. coming out of, again, action-reaction, George Floyd riots, uh you know, Black Lives Matter, everything is politicized, everything is weaponized, technology is far too powerful now. I know. Far too powerful. And there's no regulation, you know. <laughs> you think you think we uh you think we get it back? I don't know. I don't know if we do. But honestly, I don't know if there is a way back to non like you'd have to it's like about disarmament. It's like nuclear disarmament where that's the only like mutually assured destruction. When you have nuclear weapons, you have one person with a with a nuke, and then if others get like gain that technology, you have to make packs with each other. Right. And there's mutually assured destruction. But I don't know if we have that with different technologies. You know, social media with um, spyware is you know Ugh. it's like this Pegasus thing, yeah. which is in, so terrifying. Totally. Uh, mind control. Neuralink is coming. It's just like where like. It's so rapid, and there's just not almost no attempt to even rein it in or like slow it down. You know, talk about talk about AI. Like, if there was global agreements about limiting AI development, you know, some will argue like, well, someone's going to develop it, so it's like a, this arms race. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know if I completely believe that it's inevitable that we just have to develop AI. Personally. I know, and I for so long I really was on board with that. Mm-hmm. I was really just like, "Wow, this is fascinating. We can do things more efficiently and become superheroes, essentially." And or, you know what? I I really fantasized kind of like uh, Jacques Fresco's idea of a uh, of a civilization where robotics kind of do all the mundane, and mm-hmm. we then we are freed up to do the things that we want to do because, you know, as a person that is an artist as an entrepreneur and so on and it's you know i've really attached myself to doing the things that i want to do um as i think that they serve me and or those around me and the world maybe better mm-hmm. so i believed in that for a long time from like sixth seventh grade when i first kind of stumbled upon him and i like had learned about the neptune project and mm-hmm. all these different things right but then as time goes on it's like what are we actually doing here mm-hmm. like this isn't how i depicted it going i didn't depict it that there was actually these 
kind of I don't know how to describe it. How these it almost seems like there's there's different aspects to it that I don't I didn't foresee. Like for example, um, technology based. Uh, shoot, how work? What's a good example even? Neuralink. Mm-hmm. Neuralink's getting put out it with the idea that it's going to be good for people that have paralysis and so yeah. on, and maybe he can heal blind and so on and so on. And that sounds great. I have some friends that have been hurt and have, and I, and I hope that that can become what it is. Mm-hmm. My fear is that what if that gets hacked? That's, that's it. Uh, all right. So they're all double-edged swords. Yeah. And the sharper that sword gets, it's like amazing benefits, amazing godlike powers. And the other way, again, it's just as powerful and just as chaotic and destructive. Yeah. So uh, it's like kind of the ultimate question, like where do we as a species draw the line or where culturally can we draw the line? Can we limit certain things like through laws or are laws just like out the window now because technology supersedes them or, yeah, we're, too quickly? I see it. The only possible way we can do it is uh, essentially a schism in society where some parts of society go full bore on high tech, no limits. They become gods, godlike, whatever. And then some who actively like the Mormons, like are just going to reject it up to at least a certain point or even go backward and like, and I don't say backward, but I just say more simplified, um, more naturalistic, more organic. And, I'm tending to fall on that side. Like I see more and more technology. Is it really benefiting us as a like biosphere? Is it good for the planet? Is it good for us as like thinking conscious beings? Um, undoubtedly parts of it are. Yeah. And maybe we just need to see it to believe it. But that just means that, you know, the potential for destruction is there too. And it's, it's, uh, it's how much fire we want to play with. Yeah, because, I mean, ultimately, with technology, we can, I mean, this is a small podcast, but through other podcasts, I've learned so much. I mean, I've mm-hmm. basically gotten degrees and things that I would have never been able to sit through class podcasts for. Podcasts are amazing. Like, right? long-form conversation, it's kind of all I can do now. Yeah. Like, I don't... <laughs> and that, and that's the thing. It's like, this can be, this isn't edited. This yeah. is just, like, free-form ideas. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, what do you think? And. 10 years from now, I'll probably look back and go, that was a stupid idea. Maybe not. I'm trying to not have that that perspective of, of how I talk. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that we're constantly evolving. But they, with this technology, like, for example, I think this is good. I think that it is good to be able to put information out to the masses, to mm-hmm. people, if, they so, if they're interested. Mm-hmm. You've got to kind of, like, pick what you want to listen to or what have you. And some things are biased. Uh, and maybe some people aren't being honest, but the, for the most part, mm-hmm. if you listen to health podcasts and and other things, even Joe Rogan, I'm sorry, like if you don't like him, like that's fine. But yeah. you can learn a lot from listening to that guy, even when Absolutely. he does say some dumb shit. Mm-hmm. You're still learning, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, <sighs> hardcore history. I mean, who knows what history really is? But I mean, it's just even that, like yeah. just hearing other perspectives. Uh, there's another one called Curiosityness, which is a mm-hmm. really interesting one. It's all about like kind of tech and mm-hmm. and so on. So for me, I've found that that form of technology has been great, right? Mm-hmm. But then it's like you said, as like, for example, in my world, the machinery world, it's amazing that machines get better and more technologically advanced mm-hmm. and they use GPS and all these different things. It's awesome. It's really cool to be in some of these state-of-the-art pieces of machinery. Mm-hmm. But 
it's just so much more destructive. You got to be honest about it. Mm-hmm. You can it's it's expediting our our growth to a, a huge level. I mean, that's kind of why I chose to paint with an excavator because it's mm-hmm. like with machinery comes this whole civilization. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are in right now. Like if before Caterpillar machinery came around, there's a bunch of really ballsy dudes up on some really high shit stacking bricks. You know what I mean? <laughs> or like 20, pa- 20 ton blocks. You know, like, yeah. Let, li- like, you know, using levers and stuff like that to like kind of like move yeah. them around. So it's like, you know, I guess ultimately the, 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 the wheel is where we started. <laughs> Yeah, and some but some civilizations didn't even have that, which still boggles my mind. Like what you think, like the pyramids and stuff like that. <laughs> the Andean uh, civilizations, uh, Mexico, all the Americas, none of them had a wheel. Right. It's crazy. Isn't it so weird that there's just pyramids everywhere? Yeah. Okay, we're just gonna keep going back. <laughs> all the charged <laughs> topics. Well, because yeah, I mean, I just love this stuff, though. I mean, too, the other night when we were chit chatting, I was like, "God damn it, this is a podcast in itself." Because yeah. it's so geeked out, but it's really what I'm fascinated by. Mm-hmm. You know, I can only talk about certain things so much. You know, people like at dinner, they're like, "Oh, so you used to drive race cars?" I'm like, "Oh," <laughs> I'm like, "Who cares?" It's just so boring. Well, you know what I mean? It's interesting to someone who doesn't know. You know? Yeah. I mean, I find that also equally as fascinating but uh for a minute but pyramids are pretty interesting i mean it just seems so do you think we built them as people i do um all of them well graham hancock's argument is that um if they were built by an alien race then they would be perfect and indestructible most likely right and the fact that they're not like they're like uh what is it the the great pyramid is off by like two degrees off of uh off of magnetic north like that's one like marker for him. It's like it's so it's close, not but perfect. it's not perfect. Right, yeah. But it has this geometry that is locked into a seriously advanced understanding of the the entire celestial sphere and precession of equinoxes, which is so mind blowing. Yeah. Um but no, I don't I, I think that okay, I think that past civilizations were so much more advanced than we think or gave them credit for. And I do think that there's a possibility of a lost, like, mother civilization that was annihilated by younger Dryas impacts. Like, it's that's very compelling to me. You don't so, think there's a chance that they got on a Elon spaceship and went somewhere else? <laughs> yeah, I'm not ruling that out either. But then you look at the tech signatures. Right. And then you're like, okay, if we had that advanced of a civilization, where is the evidence that they had? Like, you have to get, you have to get energy somewhere, and you're either getting that energy from... Uh, well, it might be something we don't know about unless they had like literally like nuclear fusion power. There'd still be as evidence of it. But some people say that there are. Well, they say they they uh, found uh, the you know the Michael the um, like melted um, yeah melted sand kind of like that could have been a rod or something. Yeah. Well, they think like nuclear war could have happened in India like right hundreds of thousands of years. Ago. Right. 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 That's like a little bit more farther out there, but like people don't ever hear about this shit though. Yeah. If people are still listening to this by this point, they're like they're listening to some weird shit like us. <laughs> but it's also you know it's written and it's written down too. It even before podcasts, you know, you can. There's a lot of this weird. It's not even weird. It makes more sense. It's an alternative history science, science right. of history, history of science and science of history. Right. But I think also it's it's it adds up more to to know something like this because it I mean because it's like for example there's people that think that the pyramids were maybe like hydrogen charging stations mm-hmm. or something similar like that like something like this right mm-hmm. and 
And because what are they? Like, what the hell are they? This well, is like a the, lot of people think they're machines. Or and that. it's cool. There's a scientific basis for that because they know that water was running underneath it. Yeah. And um, most of the inner core is made out of um, quartz. Right. And it acts as a crystal. When you have water running underneath it, it creates an electric charge. Right. Like it's yeah. concentrated. Like, that is just... It's next level. We don't even have anything like that And they like think they right were now. raising, you know, the frequency hertz of people's um, uh, like, consciousness. Like having them ohm in the top of them yes, or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then you can have a essentially an enlightened, enlightened being. Yes. Yeah. And that's a really compelling reason why Egypt was so advanced. God, we should make one of those out here. Like, yeah, you know? Like, Might be a little brackish, but... Right? <laughs> <laughs> brackish water running under the... Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's... So I guess... Again, segueing back to your art, um, a lot of this, I mean, not all these like off topics that we're talking about are within your art, but something I've seen of yours, it's like a windmill and it's feeding this thing and it's feeding this thing. Mm. And then it's like kind of like this all conclusive piece. And you usually do them with ballpoint, right? Yeah. A lot of, yeah, either pencil or pen or just drawing has always been kind of my number one thing. Yeah. I got into painting and all the other mediums later, but so cool to think like if I just got rid of all my studio all I'm left with is a pencil and that's kind of all I need it's all anyone needs well that's what I was thinking about today except you you need an excavator that's what's so <laughs> I, so I was thinking but about this today so cool about it it's a way to draw that no one else is really I've never seen that before like what you're doing is so cool and unique thanks man but yeah again I need an excavator mm -hmm. you know it's like uh it's the least sustainable thing that there is to be doing as an artist you know that is maybe talking about sustainability i have an excavation company but i try to be conscious of sustainability not in the sense of like i'm going around hugging all the trees it's mm -hmm. it's not like that but i think that i have a real responsibility being at the helm of these things mm -hmm. uh but i was thinking about it today it's that you know a lot of artists are so wrapped up in having their things and their canvas stretched just so and mm -hmm. everything's got to be perfect and the colors are mixed to a perfect extent and then i was thinking i'm like Ah, Scott's kind of embodying it, actually. He's kind of got, like, you give this guy a, a shitty ballpoint pen, and he makes something really sick with it. Yeah, thank you. you know, I like to work on found objects, so that's... And that plays into the idea of, like, the the medium as the message. Like, I've been working on, like, just fragments of boats that I find on the beach um, every so often, or they're pieces of fiberglass or, or metal, and I've kind of been etching stories into them, and I really like the surface because it's so aged and they already have stories to them um so yeah that's that's one element but i do so many different things because uh, i find a lot of things interesting yeah i guess but it's tough to settle into one thing for me too but i, I see you you know you had the floating barge which was kind of uh uh an homage to the mm -hmm. east end right no totally yeah well so for me that was like it's an idea that I've had for a while, just taking the idea of, I want to build a tiny house, I want to make it a floating yeah. tiny house, I want to make it a monument to Bonnet culture, was the ultimate idea. Um, and uh, yeah, I got the opportunity to do it, and I kept thinking, how can I show what the culture is about, and the fact that it's like a disappearing culture, all these, you know, these, uh, the they're being displaced either by choice or or not and and it involves all these things like um cost of living and uh you know even um the changing natural world you know changing fish migration you know all these families were fishermen and farmers and they you know baymen are like an endangered species now they right. make their lives off of the water in the way that they used to there's a couple there are a few but not 
and it used relics. to be like a very defined culture yeah um so yeah um so going back yeah the, it was called the bonic blind uh because it's based on a duck blind and um i've always seen them out on the water here and i always thought it'd be so cool to turn that into a functional tiny structure um and that's where it started so i lo was looking around for one and i couldn't find one that would have been usable and just hauling it out would have been pain in the ass totally. so i should have gotten you on board <laughs> yeah. anyway i built one from scratch which was probably a better way to do it and uh learned a lot you know i i'm an intuitive builder i have no experience but just um just like, going for it just going for it and i mean i know obviously i, br I brought you know structural integrity and practices into it but nothing that i was i never apprenticed under anyone I right was, was, yeah i could do this i can put that together watch like one or two youtube videos. <laughs> yeah, totally. god like do you really need to go to school anymore i know dude i'm telling you the social element is great but like you can learn anything on youtube it's really right? really wild yeah. literally anything i mean even without the youtube i mean the the thing is pretty cool that you mm -hmm. built the blind is pretty cool and it floats and it yeah. works and it has a cool design yeah. and you incorporated a funky window into it yeah so i found a uh it's so funny when you're looking for something, you can manifest it. Like this was one of those things where I was looking for a cool window or like an element. Like I didn't really plan this at first. And I was driving around in Springs and someone had put out a uh, geodesic like kids jungle gym. And I was like, oh, that's what that thing what is. The? This is amazing. Like it looks like I could build it. You know, I could I, I instantly thought, all right, I'm going to fitted out with plexiglass in all the different little spaces and it's gonna become like a glass or basically and this is gonna be my like main window yeah and then it's like it's it's so cool that, that was like kind of the uh focusing element because it turned the whole thing it's like it's a blind it's for hunting ducks but you know in a way i was like okay now it becomes a viewing blind for viewing the wildlife you're not hunting and it's just like not an observation place uh, there's all these subtexts to what it eventually became. Um, another idea, narrative, was was uh, the idea that you could hide in plain sight. Like these, the bonikers are still here, but they're kind of hiding in plain sight. Right. And they could, you know, it blends into its environment. It's it's a um, it's an adaptable structure. It rises on the tide, and, and you know, so it could adapt to a rising sea level. Um, and they're deployable. Like if it was even a mass produced structure like now it got me thinking like uh creating uh floating um communities like homesteads or you get a bunch of them and they exist other places totally. i think it's so cool here you go to you know sausalito in california or um a lot of places in florida just houseboat communities right uh i would a, love a water world right yeah i love that idea too and, little seaweed farm yeah right um and it, so what, for here i think it, it's like a it's an applicable idea when you have, you know, if you had marina space that could, you know. That, that they would allow. That they'd allow it to happen. It would be a zoning thing, which it always comes down to septic. <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah. What I will say I'm pretty proud of out here on the East End is that they've created these, you know, personal uh, advanced wastewater treatment plans for all these different homes, these IA systems. Yeah. And uh, is that a helicopter? They found us. <laughs> But the airport was shut down. No, not yet. Actually, it's. I think next week was. I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be as well. Yeah, yeah and I think 
which we have to get into that too before we, yeah. we wrap today because I'm I'm interested in what you've you've created with that idea. But yeah, you know, I think that uh, I think realistically, wow, full helicopter. <laughs> yeah, so there'll probably be a lot less of that this summer out here on the east end. Are we in the flight path here? Yeah, it seems like everywhere you go is the flight path out here now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting that you know floating floating civilization and uh, even just like affordable housing floating would be really interesting. You know, like I think there's obviously ways about this. I think that's something that should be explored because mm-hmm. creating energy just off of the natural natural tide. Uh, you know, like, like what are they called? Like hydro turbines? Yeah. Uh, not necessarily like off of a dam, but something that's like, you know, taking yep. taking advantage of the currents. That yeah. is a natural well, tidal mills. It's an old technology, actually. I mean, doesn't that seem so much better? Yeah. I mean, because like if you drive through Palm Springs right now, there's about 1,200 towers sitting up and mm-hmm. two are spinning. Right. You know? I know. I always think that's so weird. Oh, you know why that is? Why? It's generating too much power. Right. That's <laughs> what they, they say. can't use it all. That's what they say, though. But it I, make sense everyone to me. I talk to there, though, they're like, they're never spinning. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't know. It's like build more, build more, uh, build more battery packs yeah. or something like that. Well, it's all about battery storage. I, I don't understand that. Every time I've driven through, you're like, huh? See a huge amount of turbines. Not spinning. Not, yeah, there's like a couple of them, and it's really interesting because I I I go out there periodically. Um, it's it's for a totally different thing, but it's for building off road tracks, which mm-hmm. subsequently is completely polar opposite of that. Mm-hmm. But going out there, you'll see where they basically removed the old sites where maybe they weren't operating or they were became antiquated, which they haven't been there that long. But mm-hmm. for them to already be replacing them, but it's a wasteland, yeah. you know. And what they're what they're, you see what they do is they'll basically rip up like old freeways. So let's just say they're rebuilding the freeway in a spot, and they'll take all those old asphalt millings and concrete, and they'll break it all up, and that'll become the base, mm-hmm. and they'll build on top of that. But once they take everything away. It is not remediated in the sense. I mean, there's like not even a coyote living out there. It's just total wasteland. It looks like Mars. Mm-hmm. It's really a bummer to see. The more I kind of, as time goes on and I learn about some of these greener energies, it's yeah. the less I kind of believe in them a little bit. Well, there, there, there you go with the double-edged sword again. Yeah. Every technology has a downside. Like there's no, there really isn't many magic bullets. But in that case, those are older turbines and... They're smaller, and the newer ones are much bigger, and they generate, like, each one, new turbines now are, like, ten old ones. But... Well, they have new ones there, too. Yeah. Oh, okay. They kind of, like, they kind of, like, they take the old ones down, build newer ones up next that are twice the size, which seem like they take so much wind to turn that damn thing, Mm -hmm. but... Hey, yeah, I just push, I just push dirt for a living and, yeah. and paint, you know, that's, that's my gig. But uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring up like the floating cities with the, the bonic blind, because I think there's a big conversation that opens up there, Yeah, you know, and it's not just about, you know, cause when I first looked at it, I was like, well, what is, what is he saying? Like, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. You know? And then I was like, I kind of like, I saw you post about it a couple times. I was like, okay, he's trying to kind of embrace something and kind of like open up a conversation. Mm-hmm. What would you say, like, your biggest, what would you say you would you would like to come from that, like, from the Bonic Blind? Um, yeah, I think um, expanding the idea, the original idea, which really came out of an exploration of material form and a message of uh, monumentalizing, you know, Bonic traditional culture. Uh, the expanding part of that is... Yeah, looking at floating structures as a possible housing means, um, 
you connect that to cultures all over the world have always, you know, um, well, individual cultures have lived on the water either. Um, there's entire boat going cultures that live on boats or yeah. huts above the water. Right. Um, and they're usually river cultures um, or marshes. And we have so many of those, right. so many of that here, um, which are their sensitive areas, but we do have so many marinas. Um, and I pair that, the idea with the fact that land is so expensive here. So naturally, you look at water, we have an abundance of water, um, good harbors, um, and a great need for affordable housing. Yeah. And small, you know, and, and deployable housing. And what's cool about this is that it's transportable. That's inherently with water. You can move things around. You can deploy them. You can take them out of the water. So for seasonal housing, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's actually interesting. If uh, if you be, if you got an enclosed system um, that can handle all the, it's always about wastewater and septic. And, yeah. Um, if you you know, but they could also be you know long term living situations too, which I think is interesting. You know, yeah. If, um, it, well, it's tougher here in the winter. Obviously, you you do get ice in a lot of the harbors, so it's uh, it's trickier, but it's not impossible. And there's all you know. You look at uh, Europe now, and there's a huge amount of people living on barges on the rivers, and you go to like Copenhagen, and there's yeah. the whole like floating town. Totally, yeah. I just think that's awesome. I think so too. And you're close to the water, which everyone wants to be close to the water. You can't get closer at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that there's an aspect of of doing a due diligence while having that as well though yeah because realistically if you're people always want like a a, a, um, a give and a take right so like for example if you're going to build a new house here now you have to put in the new ia system mm-hmm. which is kind of part of helping clean our waterways and all of our different aquifers that we sit on a lot of people are still on wells um and at one point these were some of the cleanest wells ever but like mm-hmm. for example next door to where i live They've dug a hole in the ground 250 feet deep, yeah. and then they end up start, you know, they process mulch, and they process all this stuff down at the bottom, and it becomes a real problem. People, you know, they don't they don't realize what's actually going on out here. It's kind of like the 1800s in a lot of ways, yeah. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different things that could be done a lot different. I mean, just from power lines to, you know, Mm-hmm. Even old septic systems being grandfathered in, it just, yeah. it's just it's a lot. It's a lot, actually. A lot of people don't, well, they're not hydrologists, and that's whole science, but when you learn about what an aquifer is right. and the fact that we have a sole source, meaning some places get their water you know, from pipelines, essentially from other places, or they might have a reservoir, we're just sitting on ours, like yeah. that big lens of water. and. A lot of people just don't realize that. <laughs> I think there's that, and I think I think there's another aspect of it that, that people don't think about. I mean, oak trees are not an indig- indigenous tree to Long Island. If you Oaks, look at really, no, there. If you look at old photos, there's none of these trees. Mm. This used to be like a lot of grazing land and potato farms. That's true. There so was, yeah. you have all this foliage that goes and sits on the ground and creates an acidity and mm-hmm. bumps up the nitrogen levels, and right. then we have big tremendous rainfalls. Uh, and we have semi-pervious ground, so you know we have a lot of that that's happening. So it's not necessarily all that we're just dumping our septic. But the reality is, I've talked to some people that you know they study some of the fish fish out in the bay, and they found trace amounts of doxycycline in the fish, mm-hmm. which is what people take when they get bit by a yeah. tick, yeah. right? Because they're trying to not have Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it is double-edged sword, but ultimately it's a uh, 
you know, I think there's a lot of con- compounding factors to all of it. But going back to like a floating situation, you know, having oyster farms, having uh, seaweed farms and things like that can really actually help in a tremendous way. Yeah. It's so much so that there's places in Europe where they're actually utilizing oysters to help rebuild shorelines and mm-hmm. so on. And here. And here, yeah. And they have the oyster farms here, but it's really a lot more small scale than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, um, which is good in a way. I think it's it's in the right scale for where we are. Like if you had an industrial oyster culture going on. That would be different. It wouldn't happen because of the boats, the boat, uh, the yacht people, the recreational boaters. Uh, I mean, there's it's an ongoing conflict, which sucks because I'd like to see more of that happen. But not even some even some of the fishermen are actually against it. I know one guy who's like totally against oysters. He thinks that they're um, what's his argument? Um, they're taking too much nitrogen out of the water. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know about that. You got to do so much. I mean, yeah. come on. If we're talking about you go by the marina and there's a sheen of water that you won't go swimming in. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and they and there's yearly closures where you cannot shellfish. Um, let's talk about seaweed, though, because kelp has been a huge interest of mine for a couple of years. And what's really cool is finally New York is, ca- is catching up with all of New England, who's been doing this for like 20 years. Um, but, yeah, seaweed farming... Um, it's amazing because it's just it it helps water quality like tremendously like even more so than they originally thought um a lot of these seaweeds including kelp it acts like a halo and it just sucks up um well a it can suck up heavy metals if you have that problem thankfully we don't but other pollutants and nitrogen it's just like a sink and you take it out of the water you're removing that from the water and then if you have clean water and you're growing seaweed it's just it's an amazing, uh, such a healthy food. Um, yeah. I collect it wild in Montauk, so. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So should we really even be eating oysters at this point? Well, uh, I mean, in a clean body of water, I'd say they're fine. But obviously in some places they're not. And I'm like, I, there's definitely some spots out here I would not be eating them. And I don't know. I don't know what the acceptable amount of. Uh... I've kind of got, I kind of like erased them off my radar a little bit. Yeah, I'm kind of like, okay. ah. Yeah. I still eat them. You do. Oh, yeah. I mean, you go, if I go scalloping in like November, I'm like, that kills off most pathogens. That's why they open the season. So, like, bacteria you don't really have to worry about, but you do have to worry about, um, I forget what that shellfish toxin is. There is a paralysis toxin that's like so fucked. No way. (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's what dictates the seasons then? Uh, Mostly. It's mostly, I want to say it's also compared to, yeah, it's mostly like the water temperature. Um, uh, they have to be done spawning for the year, especially for for scallops, um, and it has to do with the pathogen in the water. If you have high water temperature, that's just more danger for any kind of bacteria. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, that um, makes sense. But that being said, like you can get oysters in the middle of the summer, and I do. But if it's it's better in colder, um, saltier water. Okay. Like I'll get them from like Napique Bay. Right. Which is open, and there's a lot of tidal flushing. But you get them in, like, a really, like, closed-in little sandbar area that's, like, 80-degree water. Oh, probably kill them, first of all, but I wouldn't eat that. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I feel like uh, that kind of goes a clock. That goes to land-bearing animals as well a little mm-hmm. bit. I mean, the, the seasons for, like, let's say hunting, for example, it's not necessarily dictated off of that. It's mostly dictated off of, I guess, probably reproduction and so on. Yep. 
and less people around, which is good. Maybe it's that too, yeah. A bunch of hunters just running around the woods. It's actually pretty terrifying. I was mountain biking one time. There's just this guy just sitting up in the tree. Oh stand. my like, god, that happened to me too. I'm like, dude, really? <laughs> like right here next to the Cedar Point Trail. Yeah. Like right here. Yeah. Well, you have to like the um, what is it? They have to be parked in a certain spot if they're on that trail. Like there's a spot for hunters. So that's when you enter the trail. That's how you know there's going to be one in there. But I agree, it's so sketchy. Why? I mean. <laughs> I mean, it's sketchy for people who are using the trail. It's obviously their, you know, right and into the ancestral right, but uh, it's scary. I, I was mushroom. Uh, I was foraging with a buddy of mine um, in Southampton last summer, and we came across a guy at a tree stand just silent. sitting there. And it's like he was pissed off. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, he <laughs> didn't say shit. Like, we just look up, he's in the tree stand. For like a bit. Yeah. Yeah, we're like, all right, we're going to end that one. All right. <laughs> Slowly walk backwards. Yeah, like, we're just out here for the streams. Yeah. No, it was the same thing that kind of happened to me. I was just like mountain biking. All of a sudden, I like looked up and it like totally caught me off guard to like just see a guy in the tree. And I'm like, dude, you're not even 20 feet off the trail. Like, what are you going to do? Like, just be wound up for a deer right here? I, assuming that the deer are actually even following this trail, right? You like know, like well, maybe you know what they're doing, but like, yeah, deer aren't hanging out if they smell people. Like, they're not on that trail. You yeah. never see a deer on that trail. Yeah, <laughs> that's like one thing that people do have wrong a little bit out here is that they think everything's a deer trail, and it's just it's mm-hmm. not. A lot of the trails in that whole area were actually made by motorcyclists. Yeah, you know, and it's now people they don't want any of that type of stuff going on, which you know I get. It's loud, obnoxious, but. Electric bikes are on the rise. But so, like, let's talk about that. The town needs something like that. And a lot of people, you know, want it to happen. So my idea is uh, close the airport, create a passive... Well, I don't know if you would consider <laughs> dirt tracks being passive recreation. But, hey, there's a possibility there, I think. Well, I, I was actually thinking about proposing a BMX pump track yeah. over at SYS. Okay. SYS is such an unspoken gem. Yeah. Such a cool place. They got a skate park. Yeah. They got outdoor fields. It's like it's a pretty awesome space. Mm. But that is the hot topic of discussion right now is closing the airport. Yeah. Which I got to be honest, I'm fifty fifty on. Uh, I wouldn't even say I'm fifty fifty. I'm not even gonna put a number on it. Mm-hmm. I I see both sides in some regard. In some regard. I mean. It's a tough it's a tough thing because a lot of people think that it's only for the rich the only for the one percent mm-hmm. but the reality is the most people that are flying in and out of there are a lot of average people mm-hmm. like an airplane like a little Cessna 182 is not expensive no. it's cheaper than my truck yeah they're hobby flyers yeah they're or they're not you know like for example I used to own a plane with a guy and uh, we used to fly back and forth like I would have projects going on in Massachusetts and what have you as we are talking yeah, we is. hear one um and it was so much more convenient and more cost effective yeah. it was it actually was more sustainable to fly up there for mm-hmm. 30 minutes spend an hour on the ground and then fly back and so that was convenient mm-hmm. but it is pretty annoying in the summertime when there's a helicopter flying over every 10 minutes yeah um but again i think there's a yin and a yang i think there's a way to keep it open and have both Mm-hmm. And that's a, I would probably think is what's going to happen. Right. Um, so the the deal is that the town said they were going to close it and then reopen it like a couple of days later as a private permission use only. Therefore, they they could uh, in theory ban helicopters, jets, whatever. Um, so on my side of 
how I take all of this is I grew up here. I used to go to the airport as a kid and watch planes land. Yeah. You know, everyone used to do that. It was not, you know, it was not an issue because traffic was, I don't know. Minimal. Uh, minimal. Well, yeah. 70% less, 75% less. Um, and it's become a major issue because obviously the traffic it, it's comparable to whatever vehicle traffic, but now it's, um, and helicopters, which never, you might get like a helicopter like once a week back, you know, in the early 90s or whatever. Now it's daily, like multiple times, blah, blah, blah. It's noise pollution. Um, there's leaded fuel particulate that comes over that whole area. Um, and then the big reason was like this whole PFAS chemical pollution. Just they found the source point being there. So people are just obviously... And what was that emulating from mostly? It was firefighting chemicals that were stored in a garage, I guess. And then just over the years, it just seeped in and it's sitting right over the aquifer. That's yeah. the major thing that is really dangerous about the whole site. Um, so, yeah, in terms of, of what the town, what the airport brings as a you know necessary service to the town, it absolutely does serve that that purpose, I think. And so many people use it and businesses use it and... Yes, it's not just for the 1%, but I feel like that has become, like, the focus of the argument. Right. Um, so, and I'm there, I'm right there with you. I'm I'm more inclined to say that the whole site, if it was closed, could be used for so many higher purposes, even if you have this great need that people rely on it for transportation. Like, uh, if you're going to repurpose it, which is what I did with just this little re-envisioning that I did um, it could because it's a 600 acre site serve as affordable housing it could serve as a utility scale solar which you know we're talking two to three megawatts which would power thousands and thousands of homes um, that's energy independence you can create a microgrid um, if you use it for agriculture for small garden plots um, even vertical agriculture and the existing hangars which is like this other huge new technology yeah. which is pretty interesting you could have year-round fresh produce for like you know that's an amazing asset to have and then you combine that with parks and like recreation and you have all the things that every everyone in the town can benefit from um and it would really it would decrease our carbon footprint which is a huge amount of emissions coming from that site you'd eliminate the chemical pollution that's seeping into the aquifer which is sitting right above and um yeah, essentially it would become a model or it could become a model for new sustainable development. If you put the housing there, um, it was running on a microgrid from the solar and, and all of the uh, crops were grown right on site. So um, that's not to say it couldn't work in any other place that you know the town has for development for new housing projects, but it's the biggest one. So what you could do there is you could create, say, 20 to... 30 or 40 um, units of, of, of housing, which is so badly needed here. It's like beyond crisis mode. Um, everyone's talking about it, just don't know how to implement it. Yeah. And it's town-owned land, so. Yeah, it's, I think you brought up an interesting conversation again, you know, and that's kind of through your, through your art. Uh, that's kind of what we're supposed to do as artists. We're supposed to challenge and push the narrative, and the narrative is constantly kind of being spoon-fed to us and people aren't really thinking about what they really want or need and or how to implement right uh a couple of things kind of come to mind you know i think the model i think does exist 
you know, in other places, if you go to other private airports, there's a place like that I'm thinking of just off the top of my head. Um, it's called Kitty Hawk. It's in Chandler, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, both sides of the runway are lined with houses, industrial areas, which, you know, houses people, houses businesses, office buildings, what have you. Um, which is actually even better for people that fly because then they can just have their office space right there. They're not, you know, getting in a car once they get there. Mm. I think that a lot of the the space is underutilized. Um, And at first I thought it was because of safety. But the reality is, is you don't really need a lot of space on either sides of the runways. You can actually be built out right to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how Kitty Hawk kind of is, for example. Like there's houses and businesses on both sides lining it every which way. There's even a small park. They don't have ne- necessarily the agricultural aspect, and I don't necessarily think that they have the the solar panels and the battery banks and so on. Um, but I think it, it poses an interesting question of what are we actually doing with our space and our land? Because if we were to go and create a bunch of affordable housing somewhere else, it would be, that mean, it would mean so much more. You're displacing that much more uh trees wildlife whatever right right you're mm-hmm. you're creating a whole other it's new already footprint. cleared land it's already That's cleared a land benefit it's cleared leveled land yeah and i think that there's there's an a, there's an opportunity for people to really kind of evolve that space you know as far as the particulate seeping into the earth i mean that is a ongoing problem not just with that place mm-hmm. that's just the whole eastern end of long island yeah. because we have all these antiquated old fuel tanks that are rusting and, you know, you, there's so many gas stations that, you know, the one in Amagansett, for example, it just got a new yeah. uh, tank. And I used to not get diesel there because every time I would, it would clog up all of our filters. Really? Yeah. Because Wait, it, which one? The, uh, the Wayne Scott? I mean, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, but <laughs> the gas station in uh, Amagansett. Wow. I, Remember they were doing a bunch of construction there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the one right in the village, but like right before. I need a fuel injector right now. My van's been in the shops for a month. Is it a diesel? Diesel. Where do you get your fuel? Uh, all over. I don't get it from Amagansett that often, but I have to wonder. <laughs> like. Yeah, it's it. I would get it from Shell. Yeah. Huh. I go there a lot. But. Yeah, I would get it from Shell. But yeah, that's that's a that's an issue. Yeah. You know, you get bad fuel out here all the time, yeah. and so. Uh, yeah, I think that you know. The space could be utilized. It could be cleaned up. Like, for example, there are some pits that are around here uh, that just don't operate cleanly. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have liners under their pits that have, you know, processing and clean and cleansing units. Uh, you go to Arizona, for example, everything's so much more state-of-the-art on the West Coast, it seems. You know, know. They have, like, these big poly liners, and they, they flush the systems, and they're not having they're, – they're really being regulated. Yeah. And there's just not a lot of regulation out here. Yeah. Um, and so I think that something like that could be definitely addressed. But it would be nice to see it utilized as both, mm-hmm. you know, because it's funny because I was talking to somebody and there's they were so against the airport mm-hmm. and they're like, this is, you know, it's for it's only for the one percent. It's only for that. And I'm like, well, I know a plumber that's got the shittiest little plane and that's kind of how he goes and bops around and beats the traffic. It's mm-hmm. like he went through all the effort to go get a license to go. He's you know, it's not nothing to go get your license. Right. And so I was trying to kind of bring up to the point to her that if it becomes private and it's VFR only, which means visual flight only, mm-hmm. it does become a lot more dangerous, actually. Yeah. You know, because your people are rated for instrumental ratings and they can fly in shitty weather. And the Lord knows that the weather moves in quick out here. Like, you can be flying for, you know, from from the city to here. And by the time you get here, you're caught in some weird, bizarre situation. Mm-hmm. Um 
so when you pulled up that when you sh when I saw your diagram and I was looking at it, I was like this actually poses a, a an interesting opportunity for people to actually look at a solution although I think a lot of people out here are very on the side of like let's close this thing down mm -hmm. versus like let's come up with a solution right that's what I wanted to do there right. wasn't a compelling vision yeah. for what you replace the airport with and yeah that's why a lot of people are just on the fence like oh well why close it because I don't see, like what are you getting out of that yeah right? like well I, there is a lot of that out here though yeah. people like to just shut it down mm -hmm. you know like when the music was too loud in Montauk shut it down right uh, you, you name need it. a reason you need a reason you need or you need you need the people obviously wanted it right mm -hmm. you know people obviously wanted to listen to the loud music and people obviously still move there and montauk did very well because of all that i'm sure mm -hmm. and so with the airport you know it's it's interesting because yeah we could for right now for example i rent a yard for all my my trucks and my machines and so on but if that yard goes away I'm in a real pickle, mm -hmm. and I don't have a building that I work or operate out of, but if there was a new building where I could go rent out and it was a new, fresh shop and a, um, had an office unit inside of it and so mm -hmm. on, sign me up. Mm -hmm. Sign me up immediately, mm -hmm. you know? So um, not to mention I'd love to get all the excavation work if anybody's listening. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, realistically, there's a there's a lot of aspects to it that I think that you've you've brought up a good point. I didn't, I didn't expect your opinion to be that way as well yeah. mm -hmm. but i think that i think it's interesting like cre creating recreational area is also a huge need and necessity because mm -hmm. if you just create a park for example it, we create parks and there's not really people in them yeah i see that all the time you go like well herrick park in the village is finally getting redesigned yeah but it's an it's not an inviting park it's yeah. mostly uh, sports fields which aren't even used all that much but um yeah, parks need to be inviting and they need to be like usable and like on a human scale. And you do that by creating paths, uh, either bike paths or walking trails or workout stations or, you know, um, playgrounds. How cool would that be if it was kind of like that Miami Beach vibe area where you had the workout yeah, situation? absolutely. That's you have what a, I was envisioning. You have a mm -hmm. BMX track over here. You have a, yeah. um, a roller skating area, right. some basketball courts and... Mm -hmm. Uh, a little bit of everything. Yeah, or like Venice Beach, and when you're just cruising, cruising around. around, like that area is so cool because it's for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're you can cruise, you can just uh, I don't know, go to shops. There's little restaurants. There's the workout areas. There's the skate park. All those bowls, like so, you know, it's it's fun just for almost anybody. Yeah, no, that, that's true. <laughs> if you don't mind all the homeless people. But now, yeah, it's a very it's different... kind of crazy there. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been back to California in a while. It's Everyone I talk to is, is not happy with the current state of it. That's a whole other thing. What an unfortunate turn of events. Yeah. Because California was such a nice little vacation sometimes. And now you go... Everyone I talk to, they're like, man, we just got back from California. Jesus. Yeah, like, I don't want to go to L.A. <laughs> no, I'm like, I have no desire. <laughs> Yeah. Obviously, it's it's certain areas and yeah. and uh, some people some people I live there like oh, I don't even see it. I'm like ah, oh, you live in the good part. Yeah. But even some of the good parts, I have a friend that just bought a house there, and he's like, dude, people sleeping in my neighbor's abandoned lot. Like there's mm -hmm. tents galore right next door to me. It's just he's mm -hmm. it's terrifying for him. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I've had a couple of run-ins with like extremely aggressive uh, people who are in yeah. L.A. Yeah. Yeah, you know, is this usually, recent? Uh, yeah, well, was it the last time I was there? I think it was, yeah. Um, you know, minor, not like I was, like, fearful of my life, but aggressive enough to be like, I'm out of here. I'm not really into <laughs> yeah. You know, 
you know, downtown LA is like a nightmare. It's kind of like, you know, it's just sad, really. Yeah. Like, they're just so mentally ill, and like, um, but you know, a lot of them want to be there. Yeah. Some of them, no, I shouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them do. A lot of them do like in, want like enjoy living on the street. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's, like I said, a whole other podcast. It's like this. Ultimately, we have a huge problem that people are not willing to face. Mm-hmm. A lot of people. I talked to a lot of old timers, and they're they're just so disgusted by it. And I'm like, you gotta have compassion, man. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you ever go camping? After a weekend of camping, you're pretty fucking over it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't even really like camping, to be completely honest. I mean, you would think I would because I'm from Montana, but <laughs> I like glamping, to be completely yeah. frank. You know, and yeah. and after a weekend of if I go rough it, for example, like, you know, sleep in a hammock, I'm really ready to get home. Yeah. You know, hammocks are rough. Hammock is really long. Like your back. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but imagine sleeping on like the the asphalt all the time, or the yeah. or wherever they're sleep, wherever people are sleeping. Yeah, it's. Even going to New York City right now, it's like you go, you know, you find people tucked off in like little entrances of buildings, and you're just like, "Fuck, mm-hmm. what the fuck, mm-hmm. man!" Like just, and then you're like trying to run to the Uber, like, "Oh God, I'm so cold," and you're just like, you feel like the biggest pussy yeah. ever. I know, just uh, I mean, being homeless in New York is a whole other world of, you know, versus a warm place like LA. Yeah, I've heard. I heard one time that they. We're buying tickets for homeless people, like one-way tickets to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, I think that might have been a farce, though. Yeah. I heard that too because I've heard that they bus them around, like they yeah. bus people into LA straight from the asylums, like, right to there. Yeah, that might be true. That is a whole other podcast. My uh, my cousins did some documentary work with homeless people for a long time, and he interviewed people on Venice Beach, on like Skid Row, um, just to try to hear their stories. And yeah. It's like, it's crazy, but it's such a mix, you know. You'll like some people genuinely just like to live on the streets. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's mostly because it's like they call them open air drug scenes. And that's yeah, just really what they are. But there's a pretty fascinating uh, series on YouTube called Soft White Underbelly, mm-hmm. and it's all about just documenting people on the street, prostitutes, fentanyl users, homeless people, all this, everyone you can think of, and it's just like. What, you didn't expect yourself to be crying on a Wednesday night, you know. You're like, God damn it, what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, it's really, it's really quite disturbing. This guy just asks some basic questions. They tell their whole story, and a lot of times they can't even get through it. So mm-hmm. I would urge people to actually look at that. You're sitting in your cozy couch and you're drinking your hot drink or whatever it is. Watch that and just have a moment of appreciation for yeah. whatever existence you have, because you don't even need to have much to feel like you have it all when you right. watch one one series. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of people are so close to that, you know, like, whatever that statistic, like 90% of the American population is like one medical catastrophe away from total bankruptcy. Yeah. Like it could happen. It could happen to anybody. Yeah, totally. It's a a ruthless country that we live in. No, it really is. I mean, as as much opportunity as there is, it's, it really can happen to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I mean, right before I moved here, I wasn't living anywhere. I was living like hotel to hotel. I wasn't doing it because uh, I was homeless. I was, I mean, but I kind of, I, I like to say I was because I like to, you know, play it down and be like, oh, I was homeless for a second. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't homeless. Like I have a friend who was truly homeless for seven years, you know, like didn't have a place to go. And hearing his story about digging out food out of the trash can and, uh, you know, just his run-ins on the street and 
you know, actually going to the barrels of fire for warmth and so on. I'm like, yeah, this holiday and express is curtains are broken, you know, <laughs> like, but it was, it was for work, yeah. but I just had, ne- was never home. I was just working so much at that time, but mm-hmm. doing something different. Um, but yeah, I mean, pfft. anyway, back to the airport, <laughs> back to the airport. I just want to get back to this cause it's, yeah. I think it is, it is fascinating. And I think if there are people that are out here that are listening to this, this conversation, and they're not really sure what side of the fence they need to, to stand on. I don't think there is a side necessarily. I just think that there is a solution mm-hmm. to everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in like what you've kind of like put up there. Like in this clip, we'll put up a picture of, of what you, what you, maybe you can give us that illustration yeah. and, um, and just kind of, it's just, oh, it's not, this is what Scott wants to do. It's not that it's, you know, this is uh what if it was this, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a lot. Some other people have proposed, you know, regardless if the airport just comes right back up to 100% capacity, there is the possibility to, to to do the solar there, which I think would be a really good thing because again, you are adding in utility scale solar, which um, to me the best benefit of that is actually a microgrid with battery storage means if we have a massive power outage and grid failure, which happens more often than not now. Um, not total grid failure, but you know, you get a massive hurricane that becomes a backup system and that becomes a lifeline to the entire region. Um, hmm. which is really cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, even if you're like, Oh, if you're not hundred percent sold on solar power, I mean, it has its limitations, but, uh, as a microgrid, again, if you were to have housing there or it's, or the surrounding area, it's essentially, you can be independent of the larger grid Yeah, and you have backup systems. That's an interesting. That's yeah. an interesting idea too. Because so, those who also are arguing about the safety aspect, oh, we need the airport for medical uh, evacuations, which is not true. I don't know. If, like most people are like, oh, we need it. You know, you can land a helicopter anywhere. Well, and it depends on the it depends on the injury for sure. Because there there are certain people that need to get flown by airplane. There, that, that that is a thing, but it's it's. Uh, I mean, is I don't that know. How, rare though. It is rare. It's generally for like a, 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 a traumatic brain injury or something like that mm-hmm. where you have to have a pressurized cabin, mm-hmm. um, which generally they're going to Stony Brook, mm-hmm. um, which at that point... That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. They, 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 like, for example, when I lived in Montana, somebody had a traumatic brain injury and then they took them in a helicopter to the closest uh, hospital and then they flew them in a pressurized, like a special pressurized airplane to go to Seattle to get like the special brain surgery. Okay. Um, well, wherever that happens, if you're still getting in a helicopter, to, like, well, they do land that airplane here at the at yeah. um at, at well. It, the, here's the thing. But I, where I, is that airplane going then? If not Stony Brook or I'm not entirely sure. To yeah. be completely frank, um, but it's a, I, it's a good thing to know. I didn't know that. But. I I think that they are. There's also a um, yes, you can land a helicopter everywhere, and I I was under that presumption as well. And you can, right? You mm-hmm. can land them on a roof if you need to, mm-hmm. uh, or a field or right in the middle of 27 if you absolutely have yeah. to but the reality is i think is that they take a lot of precautions like they have a streamline like they have a they have a system all right we have an injured patient we go right to the airport the helicopter's already sitting there waiting there's no uh, uh you know intrusions there's no power line like they already know where they're landing mm-hmm. like if you ever see like some of these rescues like out in the middle of the like alaska or um even in europe and france and whatnot they're not just coming in brrr, they're like very careful like yeah. hey we have this here there's like mm-hmm. we can't actually land there and you're watching the documentary you're like why aren't they landing there mm-hmm. just land right there it's like you could just get the guy get him out of here and the guy mm-hmm. would be fine mm-hmm. but they're very safe about it like yeah. they, they really take a lot of precautions so i think that the airport in some regard is 
uh, is kind of like a mainstay just in that regard. But it's like you said, I think that we can share the space. Yeah. Even like you said, if it goes back full steam, <laughs> they put the hammer down, you can still build right up to that tarmac. Right. Yeah. You can still build. I'm going to say I'm going to be very conservative. 500. I'm going to say 500 buildings there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's depending on density, right? That's the other part of the equation for housing and for all development is how dense, how dense you do it. How yeah. many units per per acre, which they just doubled it actually for housing. It went from four to eight, I believe, per acre, which is pretty significant. Wait, eight acres owning? Uh, no, it's eight units of single family housing per acre. Oh, yeah. For that zone? For, uh, for I believe, any zone. Uh, well, for in that particular case, like a... How um, it must know. it must be right there, because otherwise these developers are going to hear this and they're going to be like, "Holy hell!" <laughs> it's not like it's the secret, yeah. right? No, I know, but I'm saying, you know, I th- they they really uh, they they push. It depends it on that. septic, though. That's the that's the that's. It always depends the... on if you're on the central sewering with the treatment plant or if you're on the individual um, septics. Right. Um, but I know that. So if you pair it, I think uh, I have to get this right. So don't quote me on it. But I know they just doubled the amount, right? Like, yeah. Which would make sense in that in that region to kind of yeah. So if you build dense, which really is the key to a lot of this. Space. Yeah. Why wouldn't you anyway? Yeah. Um. Uh. Well, setbacks one, and then, uh. Well, septic again. Well, I'm, well but um, that's what I'm saying. Like, let's just say, it would be so much easier for them and probably more cost efficient if everything was on a shared system mm-hmm. and it had its own wastewater treatment plant, right? Right. And then you build everything nuts to butts literally everything's like stacked up against each other all the way down the tarmac mm-hmm. each side mm-hmm. maybe leave the ends open in case somebody has a squirrely moment yeah. but ultimately i think that you could bring in because that's a that's a huge deal if you drive down fireplace road in east Doesn't hampton it, yeah it's it is it's compact it, well it's well it's like just it it's just garbage galore <laughs> yeah because everyone everyone's you know they have a vacant piece of land and they stack in all these contractors inside of there, and these guys try to like have their space, and they have their mm-hmm. pool equipment trucks and their landscaping trucks, and blah 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 blah. But imagine you just have it all clean and tucked in, and they have an industrial area to put all their stuff. Mm-hmm. And well, they that pay... is being proposed. I don't know if you know for the other sand pit area in Wayne Scott, the uh, it's called the Tinsel property. I think yeah, I yeah. yeah I know that one. Well, that's what they're proposing for there. Yeah, um, that would be great. That's at the end of the of two uh, eight the runway yeah. over there. Yeah. Um, again, it's another housing opportunity. So it's again, it's like how does the community balance it? I mean, that's another necessary thing though is the commercial storage and commercial commercial industrial use. Um, yeah, but yeah, if I'm gonna like housing should always go in a hamlet center ideally. Like it should be walkable. It should be close to amenities. So both of these sites that I'm talking about, both in Wade Scott, they're not necessarily like. Close to, uh, close to a hamlet so it's not super ideal it's just another place because it's such a huge contiguous property and that it's already cleared and level and you don't have to yeah um, clear trees which is always a good thing um, but yeah ideally you know you have all the hamlets getting becoming more dense and people just don't want to hear that like oh we have to maintain the like our rural character which is like a total myth like we don't live in a rural place anymore yeah it's, it's not that it's like, talk suburban. to the people on gin lane with their privet hedges yeah. like, <laughs> you might find you might find pockets that look rural but they're not it's not truly like it's a very altered landscape right oh so, every aspect of it is yeah. you fly over and you're just like 
there's not one naturalistic thing about any of this. Mm-hmm. You, like all the trees that are massive and they're growing over the roads and whatnot, even those are planted. Yeah. You know, and they've just, they finally have grown to full maturity. You look at all those old photos and like you were saying before, like there's no trees. There's really none. It's kind of crazy. I mean, a lot of it was cleared. That's not to say like historically before there was set, like, you know, European settlement, it was very forested in most places. Yeah. The other interesting thing, um, doing a little research on trees but the american chestnut which used to be the most dominant totally like that's a fascinating story actually now it's almost extinct (laughs) yeah sad yeah like it's amazing wood first of all yeah the most versatile wood that you know they used to make everything out of it and it used to be a major export then it got a this disease that wiped out like 98 percent or something just to think that yeah again like that was the dominant forest tree yeah that was the species totally different looking forest oh 100 percent. our forest looks a little creepy now yeah it's all just these scary oaks yeah it's very oak dominant or yeah. pine or sometimes you get a little mix yeah like northwest wood let's say that's why i love the beach areas yeah like stony hill area in amagansett is just amazing but that's got a nematode uh, parasite now from what so what caused that it's a nematode it's like yeah, this I, little yeah i know yeah. so they're, gen- they're generally in psychoponic uh, and you're not supposed to, you know, haul fill or, or uh, rather the topsoil mm-hmm. in and out of there. So how do they get ne- nematodes there? Vehicles? Any any number of ways. You yeah. know, it probably came in on, on wood, on imported wood. It could have even been a bird. Yeah, and any number of things. The same thing with pine, pine beetle devastation. That's a huge problem. sucks. Yeah. They found it in Nappy last week. Oh, no. It's just like, it, they, it's like two miles a year or something. Well, over on 114, remember when they just cut all those trees down? Yeah. And if if you guys live out here and you saw on 114 when they just devastated the woods with a guy in a chainsaw, yeah. there was a reason for that. There was a pine beetle that was just wreaking havoc on everything. And if you actually see the trees once they cut them down, they're completely hollowed out. So yeah. it's imagine just walking through the woods and getting smoked by a tree out of nowhere. That would be the least ideal. Super bad news. Um and that, you know, they say that that is a, a direct result of a warming climate because the pine beetle comes up and it's just warmer now. There's less, there's more food for it. That's And these trees don't have natural defenses. It's amazing. It's just like, same thing with like a human and a virus. Like they don't have, they're um, immunologically <laughs> uh, naive. They don't have like natural defenses. So it's just like a, it's like a buffet for these beetles. They just yeah. go crazy. It's going to be, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, too. It's like a lot of tree, pine trees here are going to get devastated. Oh, I don't see any healthy any healthy pine trees. Yeah, per, personally, I don't see any. Mm-hmm. It's very rare to see a healthy pine tree. And it's, yeah, we just, we cleared a lot uh, last fall. And every single pine tree that we that we opened up was just completely hollowed out in the middle. I was like, oh, let's make a good dugout. Yeah. Make a nice little dugout canoe. They make beautiful little, like, tunnels through the bark, though. Yeah, cool. they do. It's actually very interesting how that works. It's another very mystical experience of the bug, mm-hmm. which are zoomed in on look like the aliens we're talking about. Yeah. Now, on the um, on some of your art, for example, like what you like, I guess, I, I don't know if I've ever necessarily seen it just in a gallery setting. Mm-hmm. Do you show with like a, like a gallery? Not any one gallery. No, I've been, I've been a free agent pretty much throughout my entire career which it's only about five years old i mean i am a five uh, full-time artist so i um my work is mostly between commissioned work 
personal work and um, kind of design, um, design graphic design, that kind of a thing, or like commissioned illustration. I do a, a little bit of illustration work, but in terms of like a gallery, like no, I haven't been with anyone. I've been with a couple of dealers back and forth, um, but and it's also because I curate, so yeah. Um, so I'll put my own work in shows, not every time, because that's considered bad practice. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't really care anymore. I just you yeah. Know, it's like when I curate something, it's always thematic. So I'll usually relate it to something that already interests me, that I already have work that I might center around. So um, yeah, and I like I like the idea of showing in non-gallery settings. So I'm trying to do a little bit more of that and pop-ups and. Um, I did have a gallery space years ago. I don't know. Did we? Was it in Amagansett? It's in Amagansett. That yeah. barn. Uh, well, yeah, it was uh, next to Amagansett Square, and it was an old antique store. Oh, so I think I only saw that one space with John Messenger, where it was like that half barn. Oh yeah. Okay. No, that wasn't that. That was um, that was another space. No, that was another space. Yeah. That space was really cool. That was amazing. That's uh, that was Donald Bowser's old studio, um, Potato Barn. But this was in Amagansett. It was. So if you're looking at Amagansett Square, right to the immediate east, um, and now it's just a, a house. Um, it's funny because it was zoned for residential or commercial or light commercial. So I had a gallery there for two and a half years, about, give or take, and it was amazing. It's called Neoteric Fine Art, and the whole mission was to show younger emerging artists and some are mid-career too. Uh, so it was art, but it was also, we did like events, we did a lot of music, a lot of lectures, a lot of, um, we did poetry readings, um, fundraisers. Um, it was a lot of fun. We fit a lot of st program into only like two years of operating. Um, so that's kind of where I kicked off my own, uh, gallery experience. I've worked for other, for other galleries and, different art dealers over the years so that's kind of why I stepped off and did my own thing and wanted to open a space because I thought eh, okay I think I know what to do here yeah had an idea for a program um and it was hard to balance as a working artist myself so it was like I would be creating art showing art showing my art showing other people's art it's hard to play both those cards and be I like know. the dealer and sell yourself and sell others and then eventually kind of came down to okay what am I going to do here like I'm I have to recenter on my career a little bit, so step back from that. But I still curate a lot um, and produce events here and there, and yeah, that's always been fun for me to try to host like an experience. Yeah, I'm interested in that too. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's nice to kind of immerse people into something. And I think that's that's technically what you're trying to do as an artist anyway. If you're putting, you know, depictions on canvas or wood or paper or whatever it is mm -hmm. you're you're putting people into an experience so if you can bring that to the three-dimensional world mm -hmm. um it's it's interesting to kind of immerse people uh and, and curate something like that i i find a lot of joy in that too not even just in you know creating works although like i said it's very 2d you know mm -hmm. to just to just have a viewing of something so yeah i mean i'm, I'm interested to see like in you know where you're kind of going with things like where do you where do you want to end up like with what you're doing because like for example i see a lot of your work for example um on bottle like some of your illustration work like mm -hmm. i saw like on there's like an alcohol bottle it's like that whale or yeah Greenboard um, brewing company yeah and then i saw like uh talk house had like the 
the windmill and mm-hmm. the and the native and and there's like there's a lot of different things that you've done that I can't even bring them all to my head but you see the work and you go that's Scott's mm-hmm. like immediately like that's like your style mm-hmm. um which is really cool to see I dude I love your style like literally oh, like you. just it, so many people put so much effort like myself for example I got to bring out a big machine and have this whole production just to get people to look at it and for you to just sit down with a ballpoint pen and, and scribble down this this idea that's in your head, mm-hmm. I find fascinating. Uh, that it's just you just you put something out with. I'm not going to say no effort. There's a, there's it's just but it's it's natural talent. It's mm-hmm. natural creativity and and putting your idea to to reality. I I really respect that a lot. Oh, I've been I've been really wanting to do this for a while <laughs> just because I want to pick your brain. You know, like it's so sim- it's so simplistic in like how you create your art, mm-hmm. but yet you create these like really cool intricate pieces right um so where do you foresee it going because now that you've actually maybe like recentered and mm-hmm. you know you're doing your thing like where do you foresee it going do you, um, I, you like you said you, you want to go away from the gallery see, like scene and mm-hmm. i'm similar in that mm-hmm. like, where do you see yourself kind of going well what i'm doing now is i i do have feet in or i don't know what the metaphor is like different things going on that they're kind of different projects and i do see it holistically like if I'm drawing, painting, building uh, like an immersive environment like the Bonic Blind, um, creating objects, found objects I do a lot of things with, it's all mixed media, but it, it, there is a through line through it and a lot of it is just about kind of experiencing uh, different aspects of culture. And again, going back to the idea of like um, how the natural world interacts with a modern art of uh, culture, based on artifice and technology. Um, so that's like the through line through it. And I don't, I've never limited myself to just one medium or another, but drawing has always been like my kind of first and foremost language. So I always go back to that, whether it's just sketching an idea or like thinking, uh, like visually representing an idea. Uh, if it's a rendering, if it's, um, it's a, such an immediate language. So, I've been doing large scale drawings. Um, my biggest one to date was like nine feet by, yeah, nine feet by nine feet, just all uh, pencil, just pencil drawing. Damn. Um, so there's large scale, but it's funny because I also work very small. Yeah, I see that. Like a lot of my work is like, you know, eight by 10 or smaller. Um, and I just like that intimate scale. So I like to play with different scales. So between nine foot drawings or like 10 inch drawings. Um, go back and forth with how a gesture works and it's repeated gesture too is a lot of it it's like um finding one mark repeating it over and over and over again right I've been playing with like so shingles you'll see a lot of, of yeah. like that's the colonial architecture style so again i relate that back to architectural history especially of the area the colonial style the shingle style what that represents um but it's also a visual pattern like i really i love pattern so you'll see a lot of like repeated marks and a lot of tonality um i think very like i I see things and i interpret things really photographically between blacks and whites and grayscale um yeah i've never been i've never considered myself like a a colorist like i don't have a good intuitive sense of color i think i've gotten better over the years but it's not it doesn't come naturally to me like i see a lot of things in tonality so um, and that's like attractive to me right so by drawing communicates that, then I think it's that's kind of where I want to go in terms of what I express. 
Um, and are they interesting? Are they thought provoking? Um, yeah, a lot of it isn't even aesthetically driven, actually, which is kind of funny for art. Like, you look at an object, you're like, oh, that's a beautiful piece because it creates this emotion of like color and movement. And <clears throat> I think my creative world comes out of um, interpreting, but also like ideas and um, design. A lot of it is design. Um, like, there's a lot of architects in my family, and I wonder if it comes from that. I, I can definitely see that. Yeah. But I think we have a similarity in that because as much as you think that, like, let's say you look at something with lots of color and it has this aesthetic pleasancy about it. Um, yes. But also I think the same thing about, let's say, my work. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, it's not figurative enough mm -hmm. and it's not saying something like I leave so much to the viewer. I mean, obviously I have right. to. It's yeah. all about that. So. But I have, a, I have a similar thing with it where I'm like, well, it's not figurative and I, it's not maybe aesthetically pleasing because it's not saying a specific thing. But you should know that like your aesthetic that you are creating, like when someone knows your style, it's very aesthetically pleasing. Like I would I would love to have a, a piece of yours within like my collection of of artifacts of my collections of life. Right. Because <laughs> it is it has a it has a style to it, it has a sense. It's it's yours. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that's. If it was just somebody's, it, it probably wouldn't be the same. But like you've definitely developed a style, and and to me and to my eye, it it definitely is aesthetically pleasing. Like and it and it doesn't need all the rigmarole. It doesn't need all the color. If it had color, it'd probably actually lose its mm -hmm. its its taste and its lust a little bit. Mm. I know? get lost in it sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I wish like oh I wish I hadn't colored. <laughs> no, I don't think so, man. I think that's like that's so much you. Like, I love the fact that they're not colored personally. Yeah. Because that that it, everything is so try hard now. Mm -hmm. Even myself, so try hard. It's just like, oh, shut up. You know what I mean? It's like, don't even. You know, it's like my. I think my next body of work is probably gonna be all black. Mm, that would be interesting. Just to all go black. From all of these colors to yeah. you know, the, and the pastels to like. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like every single time. It's just this this thought of the color has to be like this and it has to be next yeah. to this color and it's just oh if that color is next to that it's not going to work and mm -hmm. well color it's it's its own world it and is that's what makes black and white photography so like compelling it's, totally it's stark but it it's also the gray tones in between it's how you transition between the two right but i think that's i think aesthetically your work is it's right on point no it's i i think i think a lot of people feel that way Every time I even mention your name, people are like, oh, my God, I love his work. And, you know, and you're not so like nice. you're not like sitting there. Uh, you're just doing what you do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's the part that's awesome about it. You're just doing what you do. You could have put in, put in that that doodle on a napkin at, you know, the diner. Right. I mean, I do. Yeah. Often. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and then it comes out and it's like, well, I would want that on my wall, actually. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. So I think that that's, that's something that's pretty interesting. I think that not a lot of people have that. Uh, I think a lot of people are coming from a place of like, what would people want on their wall? Or mm -hmm. what would they, what do they want? And I try to, I try really hard to not do that. Yeah. Try to kind of create my own pieces for in the moment. It's definitely a trap within. Yeah. Because people, like people are always like, well, why don't you paint with this color? I'm like, ah, oh, shut That's no, yeah. I'm not doing that. Yeah. I want to do this. It's not, I'm not doing this for you. If you happen to resonate with it and you want to buy it, then awesome. I'm yeah. so stoked right. that that happens. Well, that's where great art comes from. It has to come from directly you. from you. Yeah. yeah. And I think you're, you're truly embodying that. I mean, so what do you think as far as like, I know like we're talking about like art as its process and its existence, but what, like, how do you, 
for the artist that's listening, let's say that um, is just an artist that you know maybe they have a job and they're not a full time artist. How do you plan to like? And I hate this is everyone's least favorite conversation. <laughs> how do you plan to like potentially like monetize more or um, to get your artwork out there? Is that even like a thought that's like in your head? Yeah. Um, well, okay. So I always look at it from there's all these different avenues to exploit. And what's so amazing about this time in in history is that there's never been more ways to uh, promote your own art. To there's all these different avenues of 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 exporting what you do creatively or you know whatever that is. It could even be a podcast. It could be videos. It could be teaching, which I I, I do some teaching. I do like related side things that kind of relate to what I do. Um, but in terms of the work itself, getting it out there, um, it's it's a lot about exposure and um, online is now where like 90% of, you know, of where I sell work now. It's, it's amazing to think like the gallery system really, it's not, it's never gonna go away. Right. But it's just like, there's so much online things happening with art and the NFT world is, uh, I'm ambivalent about it. <laughs> yeah, same. There's a lot that's interesting. There's a lot of good stuff about it, like smart contracts are an amazing like evolution of technology to be used in a good way. In but, the art space, yeah. Yeah, and and it's still an intriguing concept. I'm not seeing a lot of like, again, aesthetically interesting things. Like, there's a lot, so much crap out there. You don't want a crypto punk. <laughs> you don't want a crypto punk. I mean, sure, I'd like to own one because it, it was, yeah, has a monetary value. value, you know. But um, but isn't that it's so funny because there's such a difference in like actually owning something for its aesthetic versus its value. Mm-hmm. And there, the, I think a lot of people that do jive in that space, they have a lot of shit art that's worth a fortune, mm-hmm. right? So they mm-hmm. can get behind having a, a a crypto over the mantle, let's say. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm indifferent too. I will probably end up doing NFTs, mm-hmm. but I'm really kind of torn on where I want to show my art in the physical space. I think that the NFT space protects you the most as an artist ever. Than like the, yeah. it's like a really interesting natural yeah. evolution. Getting royalties from a sale like. 200 sales down the road awesome great yeah Yeah, imagine being part of the secondary market Mm -hmm. like that's well that's what that's where it's going to get interesting yeah um you have all these primary sales and who knows but um yeah i i've minted a couple of 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 nfts but they're not um i'm trying to figure out the best way to promote them and i want to create a project that is unique where it's just not another collectible another with attributes that flip around and it's all algorithmic like so I think it's interesting with NFTs if it's digitally native, if it was created digitally, if it lives naturally in a digitally space. I don't think it translates as well when it's something traditionally created, like what I do mostly, and then translate it into a digital form where it's just like a digital trading card. It works. Like if some people are interested in that, great. It's just another avenue. But maybe just for like your collector, that yeah. someone that's actually purchasing yeah. your work. Yeah. So then they're they're securing their money, and then they have something physical as well. Right. Well, that's like that's what that's kind of how I foresee it. But it's like I still want to find a way to be able to showcase work without having to just have it online. Mm-hmm. I would love it if the gallery space was something compliant and something that really worked. You mm-hmm. know, I just have never found a gallery that I've just been. And that's not to say they're not out there. Yeah. I, if you're listening and you're a gallerist and you think you can crush selling either one of our work. Mm-hmm. I am fully full mm-hmm. ears, um, but I just 
I haven't had that yet. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is, right, yeah, the right relationship and, and getting the right eyes to look at it. Yeah. Because there's a market for everybody's work out there. Yeah. You know, some obviously more than others, but, like, that's another cool thing about what the internet does is it is now easier to find those uh, prospective collectors and then make that connection. And that's never been easier, which is great. Totally. So, but oh, let's talk about your awesome uh, moving gallery on the truck bed. It was. Dude, I think we should do a show together this summer. That'd be really cool. Yeah. Yeah, like that's an innovative gallery design. You know, that's, you know, there's been something like it, but nothing like that. You just roll up, like, so you're just taking that to Long Beach. Like, that's so cool. Yeah, that's that. That was a, a byproduct of COVID when mm-hmm. there was going to be definitely no gallery showings whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like, for example, trip kind of came up with like a loan to kind of like let people come in by themselves. And, um, again, I like to immerse people. Like I like to put it in their face a little mm-hmm. bit like, Hey, and some, some people need that. There's some do. people that never will set foot in a gallery or an art museum because they just don't understand. They don't think it's their space. They're not, they got an invitation. Totally. Some people need to have their face just shoved in art. Yeah. And it's good for them. A hundred percent, because I don't think that they realize how much of this world is existing with art as Mm -hmm. it's not just this white glove, white wall, elitist space, you know, and a lot of people, they think it is maybe they, 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 a lot of people, they like to jump on this clout train of like, oh, we're in the art world. Mm -hmm. We have our fancy art shoes and our art friends and we know that person and we know this person. It's despicable. Oh, just (laughs) shut the fuck up, please. Uh, It's just, it's so frustrating, but like, obviously there's a space for everybody, but the reality is, is that down to the text on a piece of paper, the, I mean, the logo on this pen is art, Mm -hmm. uh, everything, Mm -hmm. everything is art all around you. And, um, it's funny because my family, like even my father, who is like kind of, you know, he's not paying attention to art at all. He's like a very like kind of like Republican guy and Mm -hmm. he's just kind of like work hard, Mm -hmm. you know, what are you doing with all this art shit? Like whatever. Yeah. Just, you know, that's what you do. You work hard and then you die. And even he's kind of like, I did a painting when I was back in Montana on this barge and like, I was like, Hey, come down, like watch us, you know, do it. And even afterwards, my dad's like, he's like trying to give me pointers a little. He's like, he's like, oh, it's crazy how you move the sque- the whole squeegee and it cre- it almost looks three dimensional. I'm like, dude, yeah, that, yeah that's, what I'm, that's what I'm doing, dude. Like, that's yeah. the thing. Like, yeah. and he's like, well, you should do more of that. I'm like, ah, I'm like, that's so funny. But it's like, now all of a sudden he's like, he's like seeing it, you know, he's yeah. like, well, I actually really like that piece. I'm like, oh, yeah. maybe look good in the house, huh? Right. But it's like, I think you're right. It's like putting it kind of like right in front of them. And that's kind of what the truck was. So for those of you listening, I created a, I have a, a, a giant low boy truck, which is a big transport truck that hauls machinery. And I built a big white wall down the center of it with lights and um, a generator and even has a fire extinguisher in case things go real south. But uh, <laughs> but it basically, I would just pull up to the beach during COVID times. And even, you know, last year, well, I guess it's still COVID times. Uh, in any way, I would basically just pull up to Long Beach and people would just be walking by and, and we just have an art show right there, you know, just out in the midst of, of like a nice evening as the sun was setting. The sun would go down, the lights are on and you just have this big white wall just kind of existing out there. And people really kind of took to it. I found a lot of people that I was passing by, like literally a guy that was just like an electrician that I see on the job, usually with just muddy boots. And he's like, man, my wife really likes that piece. Like that's, he's like, we don't even have any art. He's like, I I need that piece. I'm like, dude, that's amazing. I'll I'll give you an awesome deal on it. Like that's, that kind of conversation is just like so different than you'll ever have in the, 
in the art gallery space. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you won't have it, because I have met some like real salty earth people there too, mm-hmm. but it just creates a totally different environment where mm-hmm. people are just like, holy shit, there's a art gallery right here and where it doesn't cost anything. There, Open you, air. Yeah, you don't. Can't beat that. <laughs> I mean, it was. it's definitely been like an interesting experience, but I, I actually wanted to talk to you even separately of this about, you know, curating something together and, um, and then like during the summer night, like just showing up at Ditch Plains or yeah. showing up anywhere, just being like, hey guys, what's up? Like, yeah. or like, you know, Long Beach again. Yeah, um, really fun. Um, I did, uh, my friend Peter Spaces got a, a, a truck, um, an old uh, box truck that used to actually, it was, uh, he told me it was a mobile motorcycle, like mechanics, like shop that he bought in California for like really cheap. And, and we started showing art out of that. Uh, oh, is that in Amagansett? That um, truck? Yeah, uh, he might keep it. No, I think he keeps it in. He's in Springs. Oh, okay. Mostly, but it's it's. I mean, it's small. It's like the size of this room. It's. You know, I think I've seen it. He's like redone it, and like it opens it's got up. Checkered uh, f- uh, floor tiles. I think maybe I've seen that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, mobile gallery, such a cool. That's a good idea, and yeah, like why not? Did uh, did any like cops get on your case or anything? I have a funny story about it actually. Um. Jay, if you're listening to this, Jay Duncan, who's uh, he owns the Ladies Fight Club, the boxing gym. Uh, he's kind of like a local guy out here. Awesome dude. Uh, kind of just like an entrepreneurial go-getter, on the grind every day kind of kid. Um, so we, I was having the art show, and the cops kind of, kind of cruised through. It was kind of right after like the whole George Floyd thing kind of happened. And Jay is a, he's a, he's a black kid that he's just, he's, he's, he's kind of sassy. He's funny. And the cops were kind of rolling up. And then Jay, Jay's like, hey, Brett, I got this. I got this. And the cops talk, kind of talked to Jay for a second. And the cops just kind of kept going. He's like, I'm telling you, it's because it was me. I'm like, dude, that's just not even real. I'm like, that is so ridiculous. He's like, I'm telling you, it's the times. It's the times. I'm telling you, it was because of me. I'm like, dude, well, thank you. That was the only time we had a cop interaction. Um, and the cop was, and then after that, the cop would kind of cruise by. And he'd be like, hey, guys, how you doing? I'm like, good. He's like, looks awesome. That's great. And I'm like. I don't know how long that's going to last. Yeah. Um, I think it would be a problem if, like, a number of other trucks just pulled up. If all of a sudden I have a Ferris wheel and, you know, bumper cars and shit, then, yeah, probably it'll become an yeah. issue. Or you just pack it in and get off the yeah. road. Yeah, but it's like, you know, I, I initially had, like, this whole idea of, like, oh, we're just, you know, I broke down here. I was on my way to my yeah. shop or something. I know. You can't prove that you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you know, at, at some level everybody wants theirs, you know? Yeah. And that's probably a little bit what's going on with the airport, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit. Everyone wants to get their piece. So if I have to get a permit at some point and all that, then hit me up, you know. I wonder what kind of permit it would have to be. Probably a special events permit or something. Or, yeah. But if you, you but know, I'm not technically gathering people. It's not an event. You're just parking. And I'm just people, parking here for a second. People are, are just looking at your cool truck. Yeah. Anything. I mean, that's what I think. It just happens to have all this great art on it. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily doing transactions right there at the beach. Right. You know, it's like which is a, actually how CPF properties work. Right. Um, it's interesting. Like the town owns a number of properties where art is becoming a, they're, you know, they're showing art there. Like there's two I can. Oh, there's one in Springs at Duck Creek, um, and then there's one in the Village now that it's like a gallery that is showing 19th century art, but then also is going to have rotating like contemporary art. Um, and so you're not allowed to technically, you're not allowed to sell anything out of like on a CPF property. Which yeah. That stands for Community Preservation Fund. It was bought by the town for essentially the public use, um, either recreation or like as preservation, whatever. 
Um, Duck Creek is an art center and they show art, but you're technically not allowed to sell it. And then in, in the village, there's the Gardener's Mill. It's right by Town Pond. And then there's a, a, a former gallery owner, well, I guess he still is, who's showing his collection and then other art, but he had it for sale. Um, and the village allowed him to do it, but it's like a controversy because it's a CPF property and technically he shouldn't be allowed to do it. And like they were like, oh, how did he get the contract to do this? It's a private use. It's a whole thing. Yeah. And like, I'm not, you know. So do they let him ride? Uh, as of now, it's because those rules are being bent. And like, I don't, I don't know. It's it's a weird thing because again, yeah, you're using public money to, in theory, s- support a private uh, entity enterprise, yeah. which doesn't seem right. But if it's done in a certain way, I don't have a problem with it. Like, I personally don't. I mean, I don't have a problem with the ice cream truck being yeah. down there. Yeah, as long as it's accessible to everybody and any artist can show there. You know, it's like that's also the public. So. Yeah. That's yeah. my own personal. I think they, you know, what ends up happening sometimes, it's like they let one person do something, and then the next thing you know, it, there is a, a Ferris wheel and yeah. the whole thing that's going That's what they're on. always afraid of. Yeah, which, I mean, I, I get. Yeah. And that's not what I'm advocating for. What I'm advocating for is that be creative. Don't just let the times dictate you into a corner and of darkness, mm-hmm. and don't ever have, like, the ability to just say, I can't, you know, like... Uh, in a time where art is not being allowed to be showcased or we can't showcase it or what have you, um, how can we? Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of like, it's like kind of like being solution-based. It's kind of a, a trait that I've always kind of had is just to kind of like, all right, well, there's a problem. There's never a problem. There's always like some sort of solution. There's always a different way. There's always something to do better or different. And, um you know, the same thing kind of happened with the billboards. Like, mm-hmm. I started kind of doing it on billboards, and then this uh, this Belgian gallery owner brought it to full fruition. And he's like, oh, we have this space in Times mm. Square and blah, 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 blah. Oh, right. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, you Man. got that off my Instagram 100%. <laughs> because I was like, I was like, this is the galleries of tomorrow. Like, it's yeah. going to be on the billboards. Like, do you think I really want to see uh, the new movie trailer on there? I'd rather see some artist's work. Yeah. Like, I, I love it when people graffiti the billboards, honestly. yeah. yeah. So it's like, and I love graffiti in that in that I sense too. Graffiti. Did you? I got arrested. Once. No, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, they got me. It was a night of one night of mayhem. True graffiti artist. Not over caught here. in the act. There was a rat in the crew. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bastard. What happens? I don't know. Just, did you get in the? Did you get in trouble kids. and everything? Yeah, I had to. I had to uh, get a a. Uh, power washer to wash off the whole handball court in the middle of winter it was where like is this March. out here yeah it's a spring school paddle <laughs> <laughs> ball wall like i just burned the entire place no way like huge like 20 foot you know so my name was sake s-a-k-e <laughs> Does it, is there stuff that still exists no everything's been totally white but so that was like yeah there was that and we did I mean, I did other public property. I don't feel good about it. It sucks. It was definitely vandalization. It was definitely... What were you putting up there? Just your name? Yeah. Just, you know, you know, pieces. Like, Sake was... Uh, so I'd do that, and we had this crew called Lords of the Cans. Like, Lord <laughs> of the Rings. <laughs> it was like a whole... You know, it was like yes. high school shit, you know? That's like, awesome, though. I love that. We did abandoned houses. A lot of stuff by the train tracks, which they tore it all down, but, like... It was it was back there for a while. Really, and like I used to. I mean, it's it's a rush because you know you're spraying shit, and we never got caught in the act, which is actually kind of surprising. <laughs> Dude, that's crazy. Yeah. See, I admire that though. 
I mean, obviously, yeah, there's definitely acts of vandalism, but like one of the 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 like the beautiful things and the one of the lures of New York is like driving through Brooklyn, just seeing everything graffitied. Mm-hmm. And it's it's cool to see like a big mural, but it's even cooler to see something where it's not supposed to be, yeah. you know. And and yeah, Did you ever I... see the uh, the five points um, in Queens? Mm-mm. It's this building just absolutely covered in graffiti, just head from bottom floor to top. Um, and it was Legally? supposed to be a museum. I don't know if they preserved it or not. I haven't been there in a while. Um, no, I know it was bought, and they wanted to tear it down. People were like, "No, this is like a cultural." heritage piece now yeah like every writer every graffiti writer you know from like the 90s to the 2000s were up was up on it see i I love that culture personally yeah and i grew up i grew up you know just only seeing it really on trains yeah you know being in montana there's no graffiti really Mm -hmm. if there is it's terribly done it's Mm -hmm. not it's (laughs) not cute at all it's not like it's not anything good But, like, I would see these trains roll in from other places, and I'd be like, wow, that's a piece of art. Mm-hmm. And my dad would be like, nah, that's that's bullshit. Like, that's not that's not what you should be thinking is art. That's not art. And I'm like, no, I think that that's badass. Yeah. You know, and then, like, moving to bigger cities once I, like, had moved from Montana, you know, at late teens, even 16 when I kind of, like, moved down south, uh, just seeing graffiti, I was always just fascinated. Like, wow, yeah. like how the hell did they get that way up there? Me they must too. have they must have to get suspended right. like from something to get how did they get that there? Right. I always I remember being a kid and being like, Who are these crazy teenagers like crawling under underpasses and like getting it fifty feet up in the air like crazy. But it's funny you saw it on the train. It's like the same idea as your um as the truck uh totally show. It's it's about getting your art and it's moving. Yeah. And it's all over the place and the whole psychology behind graffiti i mean if there is one but though it did start with the idea of creating your identity and getting it up as many times as possible and having it as much around the city as possible right so people would know who you were yeah it's all have fame. that cred yeah yeah it's it's wild i mean uh look at alec monopoly mm-hmm. you know like look at his whole thing that he's created probably more so you know his brother's the is the true artist of that whole situation too. It's just fascinating guy that has made like the art of the deal, if you will, like part of everything. His brother's made so many things happen, but also it's like you look at, you know, he tells a story actually on uh, on Impulsive on like Logan Paul about like how he got arrested. Like he couldn't even go to his first gallery opening because he was wanted for graffiti, <laughs> and like they were trying to catch him. And they were, like come to his apartment trying to catch him. Yeah. Um, but dude, I'm like I'm so fascinated by that. That's just so. So, so cowboy, you know, like that's like the real. It got huge with Basquiat. I'm looking at him right down here. <laughs> yeah, that's a photo by uh, Ricky Powell. Wow. That's like one of the last like photos that he took of him, and then yeah, it's like there's like a series of five, I think. That's amazing. Ricky Powell just passed away last year. Oh. He's a famous photographer that took that photo of him. 1986. Yeah, two years before I was born. Died of the curse at 27. Another yeah. fascinating character, though, huh? Yeah. Easy. Used to paint in Gucci suits. Yeah. <laughs> you see a lot of people. I just saw to... on the news there's a show of 27 never before seen Basquiat's, and they think they're all fake. They're all like painted on cardboard, and like there's just like no documentation of them. I think there's a lot of that shit going on in the art world and the auction world. Yeah, definitely. Now more than ever, because more and more ways to like fool the authenticator. And authenticating itself is like kind of a scam. Where you have people in on it, you know, the like 
there's there's people who used to authenticate Pollux who just can't do it anymore. Right. Yeah. Because they got in trouble for like authenticating like known fakes and. Well, now they have all these labs and they're testing paints and yeah. all these different things. But it's like, how do you know they're not in on it? Like, some of them definitely were and getting cuts. Some of them weren't. I mean, some of them were definitely like, you know, they want to get to the truth. Yeah. yeah, they want the truth actually. Yeah. Yeah, don't hire them There's if you're trying to get away with it. An interesting, really weird, interesting story with my friend uh, David, who his uncle owned a uh, uh, furniture shop in the 50s and um, traded. Oh, what is the story? Got a supposedly got a painting. Supposedly got. Oh no, this was actually a fake story. Now I have to get this. Because <laughs> I, I have to get the details right. This guy claimed to have a Jackson Pollock. Um, that she had never been seen before and said that he got it from my friend's uncle. Uh, and this never happened. But this guy was like a known scam artist who owned a submarine. He was like a... <laughs> what a piece of this machinery to like have. This crazy dude who was like a known art scammer, like just a known like con artist. And he owned a submarine, which was... Uh, like the cops like took it from him and they put it up at the and they dry docked it in Greenport. I went to go see it and the FBI was following him for years trying to figure out how what? to catch him in the act and like he had sold like six fake Pollocks or something. Like now I have to get this story right because I don't. Those are like the main details. <laughs> <laughs> already fascinating. They should make a docu series about yeah. this guy already. Yeah, but the FBI was in contact with my friend for like years trying to get the details. Holy like, shit! Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that stuff. I mean, you watch some of these not Netflix docs and, or Netflix docs, and they, you know, these guys are like, "Yeah, it was a professional scammer making, you know, fakes for years and years." And it's like, first of all, kudos to these dudes for replicating so many different styles. Mm -hmm. Like, how can you even knock it? They're replicating like, you know, dolly pieces, and I mean, just this super bizarre stuff that. Mm -hmm looks so authentic i'm like i'll still take one almost Plus, they have to like get the materials like the canvas that's the whole thing like the like, right age yeah hemp canvas yeah. or like certain things I like, like this. that detail like oh shit like that's linen from 1500s oh and it could have only come from this area of italy yeah but oh the stretcher frame oh that wood just wasn't yeah. available at that time yeah that's something. yeah that staple's got no, the wrong metals or something, something yeah. random yeah <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. Well, I think we've done a fair amount. Let's see where we're at. We're at 617. We're a couple hours in. Um, I'd like to do this again at some point. Yeah. I think we like do it again in the summer. Uh, is there anything that you have coming up that you want to plug? Do you have like any type of shows or any student programs you're doing? Well, I'm going to be teaching um, just a little mixed media course at the Golden Eagle in East Hampton in March on Fridays. Um, it's an adult class. So cool. The idea is we're going to be building every week on, we're going to be doing something, and then the next week doing something to that thing, and then it's going to build up as a process, just a mixed media course. And then, um, yeah, I'm doing a cool residency in Miami in April. I'm really excited about it, called Fountainhead. Um, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do yet, but it's going to have something to do <laughs> with manatees. I don't know if you've heard. There's like just this massive die-off of, of manatees. Uh, it actually bums me out because I actually really like those things. I know. Me too. They're just like sea cows. They're funky creatures. <laughs> yeah. And they're, I don't know, they're trying to feed them like cabbage and they won't eat them. And they're like... <laughs> it's a it's a very sad situation. There's a massive well, I mean, die-off of manatees. Well, they, even in Tampa, they had that giant 
uh, or a giant toxicity like spill that like just basically implemented the whole bay and they had yeah. huge fish die-offs and so yeah. on. I think it was like lime extract or something. It was like something for concrete, I believe. Mm. Oh, I wonder if it has something to do that. with that. But yeah, I mean, remember there's that lady? tides, there's like all sorts of bad shit. Remember that lady that was on the internet that was like riding the manatee? Remember? No. <laughs> like, I hate to laugh, but it was kind of funny. She's like doing the, the exact thing you're not supposed oh, to do. Yeah. She's like riding the manatee and like petting it and shit. And everyone's just like, get off of it. It's so tempting to do. I think she went to jail. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> and they're sitting there. It's like, yeah. But no, um, yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm going to Golden Eagle tomorrow to talk about doing something there as well. Cool. Like maybe doing like a little earthworks installation in the back. That'd be rad. Right? Yeah. They, they're planning some cool stuff there this summer, which... Oh, and they might be. Oh, I guess I shouldn't say, but they're planning some cool stuff. That's that's. I maybe shouldn't have even said my thing, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah. we'll, maybe we'll delay this a little bit before I we won't put it make out. their announcement. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Other than that, I've you know, just been making new art, and uh, you know, like, yeah, it's a quiet time of year. Try yeah. not to do too much. <laughs> Everyone can find you on Instagram. Uh, what's your Instagram handle? Theo underscore blue. Okay. Uh, any other where, and you have a website yep just scottbluedorn.com and yeah there's a lot of things on there oh you can if you want to if you're interested in looking at, at the thing we were talking about with the airport and many other things I have another project called East End Futures so that's what that is it's eastendfutures.info and I've written a number of articles um, including that you know it's a lot about re-envisioning so re-envisioning the airport uh, you know I'm talking about different uh, possibilities like retrofitting suburbia changing zoning changing uh, different systems uh, sustainable development um, a lot of different things it's about the future of the east end right like, where do we go from here like 2020 was this like pivotal mo moment and, uh, we have all these technologies now and all you know the political will is building to change things and it's a lot about ecology and, and sliding uh, you know climates all sorts of stuff. So that's eastendfutures.info. Is that on your website too? Can you get to it from there? That's not. So it's just a separate website. But I urge people to go to both things uh, because the, even just the picture of the the one project we're talking about with the airport, for example, is mm -hmm. is very interesting. And again, like this is thought provocation. It's not to say this is exactly what Scott is aiming to do or yeah. wants it's I just mean, hey i have no money and no power so. i mean i didn't see a. B, I didn't i didn't see a, <laughs> for me well a... <laughs> you gotta understand people don't realize even that people are you know putting an idea into the universe yeah. it's like they don't know where things lie and, and people are just so triggered now it's like mm -hmm. but you don't have a bmx track drawn on there but when we were talking at dinner you're like yeah. dude what about a bmx track and i was like actually i'm like i did not expect you to even like say that okay yeah all right now you got me well it's about gathering you know alliances of different right. sectors and demographics and like so many people in the town would want that i've been asking for it for years like yeah. why not integrate it and you get stakeholders to be like yeah i want this to happen totally and then um, it's not just one group of people against another group of people no yeah. absolutely i i think i think you're spot on with that i think that's like kind of like bringing multiple coalitions together to kind of have you know a similar vision it doesn't even need to be a one vision it can be a similar similarity right. uh i think is like a big goal um but yeah so instagram do you have anything on youtube not really no um just stuff from you know i gotta pull a couple funny random things but not okay <laughs> and i haven't explored the the video medium as much okay well maybe this summer we're doing something together with the art truck 
So stay cool. tuned for maybe something like that. Yeah, maybe yeah. do some some projects together. You know, we'll, we'll collab on some stuff. Um, other than that, dude, thank you very much for coming out and having this convo. Thank yeah. you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. <laughs> I right. love I love long form conversation and same. It, it's just nice to yeah have that as a balanced form of uh, you know conversation again talking about ideas. Yeah. No, and I again like it's yeah provoking ideas, talking about ideas. We don't all need to agree, mm-hmm. but yeah, man. Again, thank you very much, and uh, maybe we'll see you next time. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs>